Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The image that was mobilized to create the Free Huey movement gave Huey almost mythic status in the party. He had become an image and not a man, and that gave him power that ultimately proved dangerous. Come to the clinic tomorrow for an appointment. He came out focusing on returning to the survival program, the breakfast program, the free health clinics free food program and the sickle cell anemia research program. I remember Huey P. Newton saying, the Black Panther Party was not going to last. He said the organization was going to get destroyed based on the way we were. We were very aggressive and we kind of realized that this wasn't going to last long. Uh, we know those are not revolutionary programs. Uh, uh, they're at best survival programs. Uh, we know that uh, the people are in jeopardy of genocide, and that if they do not survive, then it won't be uh, possible to bring about revolution. We were um, really trying to connect more with the uh, people in the community, and this was a this was a, a big push, and there was probably some um, some people who were not happy. We have a breakfast for children program, you know. But that's not uh, what the Black Panther Party is all about, you see. I don't agree with saying that the Black Panther Party uh, supports breakfast for children, and that's all that we're about, you know. Don't talk about this other thing. The Black Panther Party is for overthrowing the United States government. Those people who were on the other side of this issue politically did not see the Black Panther Party as a vehicle for social service. We saw it as a vehicle for political transformation, radical change, for revolution. So we couldn't get excited about survival. Eldridge Cleaver, who, while sitting comfortably in Algeria, was assailing the Black Panther Party as being weak, and it didn't have any more muscle, and uh, it was a reform organization, a Breakfast for Children club, and he denounced the party, and he denounced the administrative, chief administrator of the party at that time, who was David Hilliard, he wanted to have even more bloodshed, which was not endearing us to the community. There are also problems with the Panther 21 case. There were legal fees, and there became questions about how much of the money that was raised for the Panther 21 was actually getting back to defend the Panther 21. We wrote an open letter really criticizing national leadership in UEP Newton and responsive national leadership, and in particular UEP Newton, was to kick out the Panther 21. They were expelled from the Panther Party. Eldridge came to the defense of the Panther 21. 
the Black Panther Party has split into two factions, namely the Cleaver and Newton supporters. This dissension offers an exceptional opportunity to aggravate and possibly neutralize through counterintelligence. The FBI was picking at Huey and picking at Eldridge, and I don't know who else they were picking at to create this sense of distrust. In the future, submit counterintelligence proposals against the Cleaver faction and the Black Panther Party designed to widen the existing rift, effectively driving a wedge between Newton and Eldridge Cleaver. Ensure this mailing cannot be traced to the Bureau. What we thought the FBI wanted to do was kill us, blow up our offices, shoot us. I don't think we understood exactly how insidious their project was. They created a culture of paranoia, which was incredibly destructive. In this sense, it was the ultimate intelligence success, being able to pit the party against itself. And the Panthers' internal conflict would soon erupt in the mainstream media. Good morning. Yes, it's AM, all right. And uh, this is Jim Dunbar with Nancy Ann Fleming and Gary Pentley. We had become aware of uh, some sort of a rift that had come to pass between uh, Huey and, and Eldridge. We booked Huey and arranged a call from Eldridge in Algeria to take advantage of that. We've got lots of things coming up here on AM this morning. Lots of things that you'll like to see, and we're looking forward to them too, right here on AM. I'll not try to sugarcoat this. We thought this is a wonderful opportunity to build audience. And so we decided to go ahead and put the two of them together. Oh, we're about out of time. Do you have anything you want to say to any of your followers here in the Bay Area? Well, I just want to uh, comment on the expulsion of the New York 21, because uh, it looks to us as though, as a result of the actions taken by David Hayden over a long period of time, the party has fallen apart the scene. Okay, fine. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank Hello you. to the people. Huey's goal in having Eldridge on the show was to show people that he and Eldridge were on the same page, and Eldridge sabotaged that, so Huey was livid. He was embarrassed, he was furious, and so within 10 minutes or so, he called back. Mr. Cleaver? Yes? Just hold on. Eldridge. Hey, what's happening? Yeah, you got the bomb shell this morning. Well, very embarrassing for me. a split in the party and and within days we began to feel just how bad it was someone has to be disciplined and uh my recommendation is uh, to di discipline uh eldridge cleaver not for the criticism itself but uh, uh the way in which it was presented the word got back to us that eldridge had put out the edict that the streets were not supposed to be safe for panthers whether he said that or not he was in algeria we were here who knows it was chaos There were certain 
chapters that stayed with Huey. Many of the people who followed Eldridge leave the party and go underground. And then some people just were confused and frustrated and walked away. They don't know which faction of the Black Panther Party to follow or if they should deal with Panthers at all. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, April 1, no fooling, 2021. So I have been told uh, this is our fifth study session on Jack Olson's Last Man Standing, the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt. So we are still in the middle of the tennis court murders uh, circa 1973. The audio that you heard at the beginning that is from the documentary film Stanley Nelson, Black Male. He did a lot of great work with uh, Spike Lee uh, in addition to all of his own his own body of work as a filmmaker. Uh, but Mr. Nelson's Vanguard of the Revolution uh, on the Black Panther Party. I think it came out 2000 sometime around 2015 uh, was released on uh, PBS you can watch it uh, online a lot of information I know that documentary was criticized uh, by many myself included for a number of reasons one of the main reasons it was criticized is because there was no mention of Geronimo Pratt in that film at all uh, which I found like blasphemous uh, considering everything that you heard right there and how much the the split between Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver uh, impacted his trial that we heard about uh, last week and they go into how uh, the sandbags and the attacks on Panther headquarters and everything we already read about how Geronimo Pratt was so integral in getting members to fill up sandbags for self-defense and protection and how that saved so many black lives Many people, as I said, myself included, were extremely disappointed that they found they couldn't find five seconds to just mention, oh, yes, Geronimo Pratt was a part of this and, and a victim of this Pro campaign and the split in the party and all the rest. But it does have uh, some good information. Uh, you can check it out. Not one of the better films on the Black Panther Party, in my opinion. No mention of Mumia Abu-Jamal either. Anywho, uh, we will go ahead and get started. I was glad... I guess I can say th- something constructive. I have all these critiques of the film. Why did I play it? I do think it is really important, super significant, that exchange where the white people brag about saying, oh, yeah, we knew about this conflict between uh, Mr. Cleaver, Mr. Newton, and, hey, it'll be great. We can exploit it for some ratings and keep the conflict going instigate a little bit. Yes, get them both on the phone, even though they're in different parts of the world. And think about it at that time. Early says, not like we got Skype and WhatsApp and everybody has a cell phone. No problem. Don't worry about the expense. We'll hook it up and, and make sure you can talk to each other. And brother, you're a coon. Brother, you're a sellout. Brother, you're stupid. Brother, you don't know what you're talking about. Brother, you're stupid. Brother, you're a punk. Black brother. Black brother to hell. We'll call it one. Context of white supremacy. Last man standing. Audio segment number one. Chapter 18, The Comedians. At the afternoon session, the prosecution's star witness returned to the subject of the threats that he claimed 
had made him pin his insurance letter. He told of receiving five or six frightening phone calls from his former colleague Pratt and others. I would receive phone calls and people would be clicking guns in the telephone receiver and telling me that they would get me. I had things stolen out of my house. He said that someone had fired a bullet into his beauty shop window. Kalustian began a line of questioning that appeared aimed at characterizing Julius Butler as the party's altruistic senior philosopher more concerned with helping his people than feuding with Geronimo Pratt or breaking heads. His ultimate exit from the BPP, Butler stressed, had to do with motives, ideology. It was my attitude that the party should have represented the desires of the community and not coerce the community into thinking the way they wanted to think. In recross examination, Cochran seized on the opportunity to remind the jury of Butler's raw animosity toward Pratt. These events, these threats that were made to you, Cochran said, they made you unhappy and afraid? Yes, sir, Butler answered. And mad? Yes, sir. And they intensified your dislike for Mr. Pratt? I think that's a correct statement, sir. When Butler claimed that a Mr. Colbert and other witnesses had been present when Pratt made personal death threats, Cochran demanded specific names and an Abbott and Costello routine followed. Answer. His name is Eli. One person. I don't know where he is. Question. Eli, where is he? Answer. Huh? Question. Where is Eli? Answer. He is in Los Angeles. Question. Do you know his last name? Answer. His last name is Eli. Question. What is his first name? Answer. Leroy. Question. Leroy Eli? Answer. Yes. Question. What is his address, sir? Answer. I don't have it with me, sir. Question. What is Mr. Colbert's address, sir? Answer. I don't have that with me. Butler's testimony ended at 2.45 p.m. on June 21, 1972, a week after the opening day of the trial, and Judge Parker adjourned court till the next day. Pratt and the lawyers hoped that the jury perceived the witness as a vengeful man who was trying to get even with his rival, but they had to admit that at times he'd been impressive and well-spoken. We're not finished with him, Cochran assured Pratt. But that's good enough for now. We've still got to prove he's a snitch, Pratt said. Don't worry, Cochran said. It'll come out. 
Following her relaxed timetable, the judge reconvened court the next afternoon at 2.15. Dwayne Wolfer, the controversial chief forensics chemist for the LAPD, stated his credentials and identified a 45 caliber pistol, three 45 caliber shell casings, and a spent slug as items he'd examined in his laboratory. He explained that he'd been unable to make a connection between the slug and the weapon and added, this simply means either the barrel could have been changed or the fact that the gun has been used excessively since the time of the previous firing. He said he'd established a connection between the weapon and the shell casings by ejector and firing pin marks. Is that a positive opinion? Kalustian asked. The expert witness answered, that's correct. Cochran had been called from the courtroom briefly and Hollapeter said, we have no questions. Perhaps because of their age difference, Pratt and Hollapeter had become slightly estranged during the ordeal of the trial. As Wolfer stalked from the courtroom without being cross-examined, Pratt exploded in the lawyer's ear. I respected Hollapeter's ability, he explained later, but he didn't know a thing about ballistics. Ejector and firing pin marks aren't evidence. We should have put up a fight. After Wolfer's uncontested testimony, the judge gave the jury a long weekend. Court was reconvened at 11.25 a.m. Monday, June 26, and the prosecution rested. Over a working lunch, Cochran and Hollapeter considered some of the anomalies in the case against their client. All murder trials were different, but a standard prosecutorial technique was to pad the record with police evidence and official witnesses in an effort to impress the jurors with sheer bulk. But Kalustian hadn't followed that pattern. Cochran wondered why his old classmate had avoided calling the top investigators on the case. Why hadn't he taken the testimony of Sergeant Ray Callahan of the LAPD's Panther Unit, a cop who was so personally involved that he'd volunteered to fly to Texas to put the handcuffs on Pratt? Where was Sergeant John Eckstein of the Santa Monica Police Department, the first investigator on the case and one of the most outspoken about Pratt's guilt? Where were the other detectives who worked the case? I'm thinking that Kalustian is afraid to call them because of the original ID procedures Cochran suggested. That's their weak point. Hollapeter said, something's funny, all right. Did you ever try a murder case where everybody and his cousin were put in live show-ups, but not the main suspect? Nope. The two attorneys agreed that there was an odor, but they couldn't trace its origin. Cochran drove home to the Hollywood Hills and tried to get some sleep. From his earliest days in practice, he'd become accustomed to winning. 
he'd sailed through the struggling young lawyer phase of his career in a year. He told himself that Pratt's prospects still looked good. If this was a prize fight, and in many ways it was, he said to himself, complete with rabbit punches and headbutts, Geronimo would be ahead on points. Barbara Reed had come across as impressionable and manipulable. The bereaved Kenneth Olson was a sympathetic figure, of course, but he'd seemed a little too eager to avenge his ex-wife's death. And Julio Butler had revealed himself as a resentful, duplicitous partisan. Cochran wished he'd been able to nail down the beautician's activities as an informer, but at least a few hints and innuendos about his police connections had been introduced into the record, some of them from both sides of the witness's mouth. Cochran wished he felt certain of winning, but he'd seen too many juries bite overconfident lawyers in the backside, especially in cases involving race. The defendant, who bought a new suit to go home in style, sometimes ended up donating it to the goodwill. In the final days of Calustian's presentation, Cochran, Hollapeter, and the Pratt Defense Committee stepped up their crucial search for witnesses who could place their client in Oakland at the time of the shootings. A hired investigator and a half dozen Pratt relatives and other volunteers had searched without result. Shirley Hewitt, a former legal defense secretary at Panther headquarters, admitted to Hollapeter that she and some others could confirm the visit to Oakland, but they were afraid to testify because of the split in the party. Hollapeter begged her to reconsider. Interviews with other Panther insiders proved equally frustrating, and some of the sessions turned ugly. Huey Newton's fatwa against Pratt not only dissuaded many Los Angeles Panthers from becoming witnesses, but also dissuaded David Hilliard, Bobby Seale, Emory Douglas, and others who sat with Pratt at meetings at Panther headquarters in Oakland. The only remaining friendlies in the top echelons were Newton's blood enemies, the Cleavers. Eldridge couldn't return to the United States because of his legal difficulties, but Kathleen agreed to testify. The Cleavers were living on the kindness of strangers, and it would cost $1,200 for a round trip between Algiers and Los Angeles. Cochran wired a check drawn on his personal bank account. I remember a chick named Jacqueline. Jackie Hooten or Horton or something like that, Geronimo said at a strategy session in the cubbyhole interview room in L.A. County Jail. Man, you got to find her. She was with me in Oakland a lot. The defense got an unexpected break when an ex-Panther secretary named Linda Red agreed to testify. She gave me hell when I finally reached her by phone, Pratt told Cochran and Hollapeter. She said, why didn't you call me a long time ago? Why'd I have to read about this trial in the LA Times? Cochran added her to his witness list. 
Chapter 19, The Best Offense. The first defense witness would be hostile and Cochran reminded himself that she would have to be handled with care. Margaret Morgan, Barbara Reed's identikit assembler, had been a loyal Santa Monica police officer for 15 years. Cochran opened by politely asking if she'd had special training. I was sent to the identikit school out in Santa Ana, the woman testified, and I used the identikit in the course of my job. Cochran asked the policewoman to refer to her notes and tell the jury how Mrs. Reed had described suspect number two as the two of them were preparing the composite. Male Negro, Morgan Red, 23 to 29 years, 5'8 to 5'9, medium weight, 145 to 150 pounds, medium light complexion, clean looking, very trim haircut, black shoes, black or dark pants, Eisenhower type jacket, light beige, rust or a brown colored shirt or sweater underneath the jacket. In your description, Cochran asked, I noticed that she never told you anything about a mustache or a beard or goatee. Is that right? Morgan took a long look at her notes, then said, Not according to this report. I noticed she never told you anything about any scars on the face of the individual. Is that right? Cochran wanted an unequivocal answer, but instead she offered, Not to my recollection. It was a pivotal point, and he returned to it. With regard to the face, she told you the person was clean-looking? As I testified from the report, yes. In response to persistent questioning, the police technician finally agreed that Barbara Reed had selected identikit foils depicting a clean-shaven, scarless black man with a thick mouth, thick lips, a broad nose, bushy and thick brows. Some of the jurors appeared to be studying Geronimo Pratt. Few of the characteristics seemed to apply. On cross-examination, Galustian suggested that Officer Morgan's memory might be imperfect since she was testifying about events that happened three and a half years earlier. The policewoman said she recalled that Mrs. Reed hadn't been happy with the finished identikit product. On recross, Cochran asked if Mrs. Reed had told you about a mustache, a beard, a goatee of any kind, you would have made an effort to put that in, wouldn't you? Answer. I would have given her the book to attempt to find one. Question. And you did have beards and mustaches and goatees in that book. Isn't that correct? Answer, yes. Question, just as you had noses, isn't that correct? Answer, yes. Oh, there's pages of them. Pages of noses. Question, 
if there was some scarring that she told you about, you would try to find those scars? Answer. There are no scar foils. Question. Isn't it true in the past you have drawn in scar foils or drawn in a scar at the point where the person says a scar is? Answer. We have attempted that. They don't work very well. Question. Now, in your discussions with Mr. Kalustian this morning, did you ever have occasion to discuss this conversation with Mrs. Reeds, wherein she said she was unhappy with the person's mouth? Answer. Yes. Question. You have remembered that all this time, the last three and a half years. Answer. I just remember that she was unhappy with the foils. Question. And you remembered that during the conversation with Mr. Kalustian? Answer. Yes. Having once again suggested careful briefing by the prosecutor, this time of a defense witness, Cochran cut the questioning short. He hoped the jury got the point. There was nothing illegal or even unethical about preparing witnesses, but overzealous trial prep might seem a touch inappropriate for a deputy DA whose first obligation was to serve the interests of justice. The next witness for the defense, the former secretary, Linda Redd, said she'd been in high school in 1968 when Geronimo Pratt had worked with her and others to set up a black studies program. At the time, he'd had a beard, full mustache, and beard. Cochran focused on the period around December 18, 1968, the date of the tennis court shootings. The young woman told of talking to Pratt in the Los Angeles Panther office sometime between December 13 and 15, then said she didn't see him until two days after Christmas. How do you recall the date that you next saw him, December 27? Cochran asked. That was my birthday. Later, she testified, I never forgot about December of 68 because that's when, like the first person I knew, actually in the party to get killed, and that was Captain Franco. The former Panther secretary helped Cochran bolster an important point about Pratt's Pontiac convertible. Everybody drove the GTO, she told the jury. It was sort of like a community car. Anybody needed transportation, they would drive it if it was available. She confirmed Julius Butler's testimony that he'd been one of the drivers. Soon after Richard Kalustian began his attack on the witness's credibility, Cochran objected to one of her questions. I didn't ask that question, the prosecutor snapped. I never intended it. I have been a lawyer long enough to stay away from that kind of question. I may be a little slow, John, but I'm not stupid. The judge sustained Cochran's objection. It was a rare procedural victory for the defense. 
Shirley Hewitt, the former Panther who told Hollapeter that she was afraid to testify, changed her mind and told the jury that she remembered Pratt's extended stay in Oakland in December 1968. She said she'd first sighted him in mid-month just after she joined the party and noticed that he dressed very nicely and he had a powder blue suit on, two-piece suit. And the thing that stuck in my mind was he had some blue suede shoes on. Cochran said, blue suede shoes? Yes, because it was known that people who were in Los Angeles would dress sharp. Everybody in Los Angeles dresses sharply, Cochran said, producing smiles in the jury box. Hewitt testified that the modishly dressed Angelino had attended a session of the Central Committee along with David Hilliard, Bobby Seale, Kathleen Cleaver, and other prominent Panthers. The meeting, she said, had begun around 6 p.m. on December 18 and lasted till dawn. Cochran appreciated the woman's voluntary testimony, but he also recognized the beginnings of a problem. If the jurors kept hearing that Pratt had been at executive meetings in Oakland at the time of the shootings in Los Angeles, they would begin to wonder why Panther executives weren't in court saying so. He kept hoping for a last-minute call from Hilliard, Seal, Emory Douglas, or even Huey P. Newton. Footnote 23. Years later, Douglas explained, We couldn't say anything because we had orders from Huey. He doubted that his testimony would have mattered. I don't think we could have saved him. With all that disinformation that was being put out by the FBI, I don't think it would have worked. End of footnote. The feud's over. Tell Geronimo we're on the way. But he feared it wouldn't happen. Word from Oakland was that Newton was still adding names to his enemies list. He wasn't likely to provide an amnesty for the jackanape Pratt. Cochran took a stab at elucidating the problem to the jury by asking Shirley Hewitt, Mr. Hollipeter asked you about finding some witnesses or locating some witnesses, is that correct, in the Bay Area? Galustian objected. Apparently, they are trying to bring in the testimony of other witnesses through this witness, he told the judge. It would be hearsay. Judge Parker agreed. It is hearsay. It is also leading. The fact that Panther leaders were afraid to testify was too important a point to be dropped without a fight, and Cochran tried another approach. Did you talk to people in Northern California? He asked. Yes, the legal secretary answered. I talked to several people. Cochran asked if other witnesses were afraid to testify. That's true, she replied. Objection, Kalustian called out. The judge ordered the answer stricken from the record. Cochran didn't intend to be any less persistent than his Loyola classmate. 
you are no longer a member of the Black Panther Party, he said to the witness. Is that right? That's right. Did you have some fear with regard to coming to testify? I have some apprehensions. Yes. Why is that? Well, since I have left the party, I have been harassed myself, and I just know that my husband and the other people in the party won't relate to me coming to testify for G. Cochran asked if there was a split in the party. The witness answered, definitely. It was as close to a clear depiction of the problem as Cochran would be able to provide the jurors for the rest of the trial. He hoped that at least a few got the message. In deliberations, one could enlighten the others. The next defense witness identified himself as Richard Stanley Johns, Julio Butler's former roommate and a self-described squad leader in the hairdresser's underground cell. Johns told of driving to a ghetto gas station to find the suspected traitor, Ollie Taylor, and returning him to Butler's apartment. Geronimo Pratt, the witness testified, hadn't been on the premises when Taylor was dropped off, the first of several contradictions of Butler's testimony. Johns also confirmed that many different Panthers drove the Pontiac GTO known as the GOAT and that Pratt had had facial hair as long as I have known him. He talked about Julio's assault on a Panther named Bobby for refusing to cut a dog's throat. It was quite a few teeth that were knocked out and the other strong arm tactics. And he became the first witness to affirm in contradiction to Butler's direct testimony that Pratt had expelled Butler from the party. At the morning session on Tuesday, June 27, Cochran called Dr. Robert Buckhout, a psychology professor and a pioneer in the study of eyewitness testimony. The Ohio State University PhD had barely started to list his credentials when Kalustian demanded a sidebar. Out of the jury's earshot, he attacked Buckhout, his background and bona fides, and compared his field of expertise to phrenology, the ancient study of bumps on the head. After a long wrangle, Judge Parker sent the jury home and approved the prosecutor's motion to hold a formal hearing to decide whether Buckout should be permitted to testify. The hearing droned on in an empty courtroom, and in the end, the judge ruled that the psychologist could be heard. Juries may or may not accept the testimony of an expert, she noted. They frequently don't accept the testimony of psychiatrists. In an aside that Cochran and Hollipeter found gratifying, she added, it is true that it is common knowledge that there are mistakes in eyewitness identification. In the presence of the jury, 
Buckout described experiments in which staged assaults were committed in college classrooms and the students were asked to describe what they'd seen. In one such experiment, students described the weight of the 160-pound perpetrator in a range from 98 to 225 pounds. The height descriptions were similarly inaccurate, and the time estimates were the worst. The staged incident had taken 34 seconds. The average student guessed it had lasted three minutes. Six weeks later, the test group was shown a photo lineup which included the perpetrator and five others. The basic results, Buckout recalled, were that over 65% of the people in the classroom specifically identified the wrong man. Cochran asked, based upon your experience, your background, your research, your papers that you have done, do you have an opinion as to whether or not eyewitness identification is reliable? My opinion, Buckout replied, is that in general, it is not. The human perceiver in any circumstance is not a perfect recorder of what he sees. All too often, he said, preconceptions about racial characteristics weakened eyewitness testimony. We use stereotyped judgments. You have seen one black person, you have seen them all. With frequent objections from the prosecutor, Buckout turned to his evaluations of the identifications of some of the prosecution's star witnesses. Sometimes he seemed to lose the jury with phrases like proactive inhibitions, dyadic verbal behavior, and psychonomic perceptions, and Cochran kept forcing him to simplify. Buckout told the jurors that he thought little of Kenneth Olson's identification of Geronimo Pratt and less of Barbara Mary Reed's. To the psychologist, Olson's identifications were weakened by the stress of the robbery and shooting, and Mrs. Reed's were tarnished by racial stereotyping and her cocksureness. Nor did he agree that the memory of an eyewitness would sharpen over the years. As to the photo selections that had been made in roundtable settings consisting of police officers, deputy district attorneys, relatives, and fellow victims, Buckout suggested that they were useless. People have a desire to be correct, he told the jury. A police officer or a court officer may be in the position of conveying to the person that I didn't bring you down here for nothing. And the person may be saying to himself, I don't want to appear a fool. He described the photo lineup in which Pratt had been the only suspect in a bush jacket as an unfair test. Cochran's expert endured an intense cross-examination his opinions and analyses challenged but unchanged, and was excused late on Friday afternoon, 
June 30. He'd been on the witness stand for nearly four days. The next witness was refreshingly brief. Lamar Lyons described himself as ex-student body president, high potential program, UCLA, and told the court that his classmate, Geronimo Pratt, wore a light growth of facial hair in college and never carried a gun. Then Cochran rolled the dice and called Santa Monica detective John R. Eckstein, lead investigator on the case before it had been taken over by the LAPD's Panther unit. Eckstein had been so emphatic about bringing Pratt to justice that he'd chauffeured Barbara Mary Reed to LAPD headquarters so she could identify the perpetrator. Cochran had to risk the detective's adverse testimony because he wanted the jury to know exactly who had generated the two composites that bore so little resemblance to the man on trial. His first police witness, Margaret Morgan, hadn't fully answered the question. Neither did Eckstein. He insisted that he himself had taken no part in creating the composites. He admitted that one bore the penciled inscription M. Morgan, but I don't know when that was put on there. He thought the other composite might have been made by the CDC, the California Department of Corrections. Cochran brought up the delicate matter of the suspect whom Kenneth Olson had mistakenly identified long before he pointed out Geronimo Pratt. Cochran still remembered Olson's evasiveness earlier in the trial. I identified the person at the lineup that I had seen in the pictures as such, and I told Detective Eckstein that while there was a possibility, I didn't feel I could really make an identification of that person because I didn't feel, really, it was the person. Cochran found it no easier to get a direct answer from Eckstein. Question. It is true, is it not, that at one point, Mr. Olson picked the pictures of two of the suspects out, didn't he? Answer. I would like you to elaborate a little further. Picked you out. Question. You showed Mr. Olson a series of photos over a period of time? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. At some point, you showed him a series of six photos on one particular date, didn't you? Answer. Yes, I did. Question. From those six photographs, Mr. Olson said two of these men looked like the men who were the attackers? Answer. They looked like two of the men that could be the attackers. Question. As such, he asked for a lineup. Isn't that correct? Answer. Yes, he did. He wanted to see them in person as he couldn't identify them from the pictures. Question. 
you furnished him with that lineup. Isn't that correct? Answer. That's correct. Question. From that particular show up, is it true, is it not, that Mr. Olson picked one of those men out as believing that was one of the men involved in the attack? Answer. He picked a man out that he had seen a picture of and he said he thought he could be involved, but he wasn't that positive. Question. Do you have the pictures with you today of the six men in that lineup? Answer. No, sir. I haven't. Question. Where are those pictures? Answer. I don't know right at this time. Question. If we needed them later, could you get them for us? Answer. It's possible. If I can get my hands on them. Isn't it odd, Cochran thought in passing, how so much exculpatory evidence evaporates in police stations? He'd seen a mugshot of Ernest Perkins, the man Olson had thought might be involved, and he bore little resemblance to Geronimo Pratt. If Cochran could get his hands on the photo lineup from which Olson had selected the wrong man, he could show the jury a concrete example of botched cross-racial identification. He could also show how desperate the police had been to solve the case before Julio Butler dropped Pratt in their laps. He asked Eckstein, will you check for us regarding those pictures? Yes, the detective promised. I will. Over the weekend, Cochran drove to Los Angeles International Airport to pick up Kathleen Cleaver. The exiled panther seemed frazzled after the long flight from North Africa, but eager to testify. As Cochran steered his Cadillac onto Century Boulevard en route to her friend's house in suburban Compton, he realized they had a tail. The pursuit driver kept his dark car a few feet from the Eldorado's bumper. Cleaver peeked behind and said, that's the FBI. Footnote 24. Years later, the FBI confirmed that it had conducted surveillance on Pratt's relatives, attorneys, and witnesses throughout the trial. End of footnote. They've got their own style. They don't do surveillance. They do intimidation. Cochran crunched the brake pedal and swerved to the curb. Son of a gun, he exclaimed to his passenger. They tap my phones and tail my witnesses. What the hell kind of trial is this? You were never a panther. Cleaver said matter-of-factly. What do you mean? You'd think this was nothing. On the rest of the drive, he kept hearing a familiar voice in his head. This whole case is about something else. 
you'll see they're after me and they're going to do whatever it takes to get me. Before the trial continued on Monday, July 3, Cochran and Hollipeter held a short strategy session and decided that they were still ahead. They agreed that the jury had been fed enhanced testimony, some of it downright false, and they hoped that the liars had given themselves away. Countering falsehoods was what lawyering was all about. Then they called one witness too many. Chapter 20 Overexposure Under any conditions, it would have been hard to keep Charles Emil Pratt off the witness stand. The most tightly wound Pratt had also been the most vocal about his brother's innocence. At 35, Charles was 10 years older than Geronimo and proud to stand in loco parentis. As family pathfinder, he led the Pratt diaspora to the West and worked his way through UCLA. A handsome man, he briefly dated his classmate, Johnny Cochran's sister, Pearl, and earned a master's degree at USC. Along with his younger brother, Jack, Charles had been in a state of rage ever since the police incursions on his sister Virginia's apartment. They need a warrant to search a white person's house, he complained to the defense attorneys. But they just bust in on black folks. The older brother claimed that he turned up physical evidence of Geronimo's innocence. Leafing through a family photo album, he found a Polaroid print that showed Geronimo holding an infant nephew while Charles' other three sons peeked at the camera from the bathtub. Geronimo was wearing a conspicuous mustache and frizzy goatee. The picture had been taken during the year-end holidays in 1968, less than two weeks after the shootings. Cochran and Hollipeter tried to decide what to do with the evidence. As students of the case would point out in the future years, the introduction of the photo could produce no major gain for the defense. Five witnesses, including the arch-enemy Julio Butler, had already agreed that the defendant had facial hair and or that they'd never known him without it. Other witnesses waited in the wings to say the same. Nor had Kalustian attempted to counter the damaging testimony despite the fact that the original composites plainly showed clean-shaven killers. It was the most glaring contradiction in the prosecution's case. Charles Pratt, slight, wiry, with wavy hair and a neatly trimmed beard, took the witness stand on Monday morning, July 3, and immediately seemed to put Kalustian on edge. After Hollipeter asked, how many brothers and sisters do you have? The prosecutor called out, objection as immaterial. The defense attorney withdrew the question, but when he asked, do you have children? Kalustian objected again.
After the preliminary skirmishing, Charles identified the Polaroid picture and said that it had been taken in his home shortly after Geronimo's return from Oakland in the final days of 1968. If he'd had facial hair at that time, he couldn't have been clean-shaven at the time of the murder two weeks earlier. Charles testified that his brother hadn't been clean-shaven since Vietnam. Imelda Pratt Granger, married and living in Chicago, backed up her brother's testimony. The Polaroid picture had been taken December 27, 1968, she said, at a birthday party for Charles's son. She had a clear memory of Geronimo's goatee. I was always after him to maybe cut it off because I didn't really like it. The questioning of the next witness, a former Black Panther and shoe salesman named Michael David Penwell, produced an exchange that made Pratt nod knowingly at his lawyers. On direct examination, Penwell reinforced defense points about facial hair, bush jackets, and the GTO's multiple drivers. On cross-examination, Kalustian asked when he'd first been asked to remember the events before the court. Penwell began a ruminative answer, the kind that usually aggravates one lawyer or the other. Well, the first time, going back, I got out of Biscalouse Center Jail in July of last year, no longer. I was out two weeks, and I had a visit by the FBI, and that was when the trial of the 13 was. The Panther 13 was going on, and FBI told me that they was, you know, charging G with a murder. In a stern voice, Kalustian said, What FBI agent came to you and told you that? I don't know their name, Penwell answered. The prosecutor said, they didn't come and tell you that, did they? It was phrased more like a statement than a question. Yes, they did. Kalustian said sharply, the FBI's never been involved in this case and you know it. Penwell started to answer, well, I, when Cochran interrupted and said, object to Mr. Kalustian testifying. Sustained, Judge Parker said. The deputy DA paused, then asked Penwell, the first time you remember anything about the events of December 1968 was when some people you think were the FBI came to you. Penwell said, I saw their identification, sir. Kalustian dropped the subject. At the next recess, Pratt told his attorneys, Like I said, we're fighting the whole damn government. You were on track from the beginning, Cochran admitted. You always claimed that somebody fixed this case, 
Wouldn't it be something if it was the FBI? Kathleen Cleaver, an original Panther who once been a member of the BPP Central Committee, gave her place of residence as Algiers, Algeria. Under Cochran's questioning, she testified that she had a clear recollection of Geronimo's presence in Oakland in the last half of December 1968 because a close friend had been shot on Market Street in San Francisco on December 13, and that date sticks in my mind. She described social events, parties, and meetings she'd attended with Pratt. There was a lot of movement, a lot of flux. People were moving around, and he was there. On cross-examination, Kalustian asked about the timing of Cleaver's first awareness of the murder charges, her meetings with defense attorneys, the importance of the case, and other marginal issues. Cleaver seemed prickly, and after a few minutes, the prosecutor said, Can I ask the questions and you answer them, perhaps? Object to the lecture, Your Honor, Cochran said. Cochran's direct examination had lasted 15 minutes, but Kalustian kept the witness on the stand twice as long and succeeded in making her seem less certain about her timetable and more biased toward her friend Pratt. On balance, Cochran remained happy that he paid Cleaver's way from Algeria. He asked a few questions on redirect examination and then induced her to repeat that every time I have seen him, he had facial hair. I have never seen him without facial hair. He hoped he wasn't boring the jury with the heavy repetition, but it went to the heart of the case. In the deliberation room, the jurors would pass Charles Pratt's Polaroid print from hand to hand, powerful physical evidence that Geronimo couldn't have been the killer. It was the best kind of proof, if it wasn't tainted. They can put the uh, dramatic music effect in. Dun, dun, dun. What a cliffhanger to end the chapter with. So we'll pick up uh, the next chapter, his own best witness chapter 21 as we we're moving along not briskly but not too bad getting through uh the text uh gusty renegade context of white supremacy halfway point of our book study uh if you have commentary to share notes observations questions seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code Five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. I was fortunate enough <clears throat> to see the cherry blossoms. They have cherry trees throughout uh, the Washington area, but the University of Washington they have a really lovely set of cherry blossoms. Uh, out in the uh, courtyard area. People go there to get married and all kinds of goofiness. But I uh, strolled through right as they're kind of in full bloom. 
cherry blossom time u-dub campus is still closed but you know cherry blossoms are not number again is 720-716-7300 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com let's see uh, one of our investors wrote in uh, chapter 5 or the comedians I forget the chapter number I respected Mr. Hollapeter's ability he explained later but he didn't know a thing about ballistics ejector and firing pin marks aren't evidence we should have put up a fight excellent example of the lack of resources available to Mr. Pratt as opposed to OJ no comparable Barry Sheck for Mr. Pratt excellent point Mr. Simpson had a phalanx of some of the best attorneys in the world and investigators Mr. McKenna he was on the program and all the rest of these folks uh, Mr. Pratt he had a young Johnny Cochran who was doubtful the whole time. Like, Hush up all that conspiracy talk, talking, you know, somebody's out to get you, being paranoid. Excellent point. Continuing. The best defense. Uh, Dr. Robert Buckout, a pioneer in the study of eyewitness testimony. Uh, Buckout replied, the human perceiver in any circumstance is not a perfect recorder of what he sees a police officer or a court officer may be in the position of conveying to the person that I didn't bring you down here for nothing I have concluded that the continued reliance and emphasis upon eyewitness testimony at trial without a disclosure to the jury about its inherent problems by the judge has to be another example of the corrupt nature of the global system of racism white supremacy racist man racist woman can just use it to exonerate or convict based on their particular agenda absolutely and particularly with a case like this because this is not you know this murder or crime happened on Monday and we're going to trial on Wednesday this happened in 1968 now we're in court in 1973 and I got a tip now what type of jacket did they have on and what what come on come in in fact <clears throat> I can put this in full context I've talked about what a dangerous year it's been I just mentioned that on the program yesterday exactly what they just said about eyewitness and particularly like we're talking about uh, Barbara Reed this is she's at the hobby shop right so she says these black people come uh, and harass her and leave and then ostensibly these are the same black people who did the shooting right uh, that she remembers what they had on and this is what they looked like and all the rest of it and the bush jacket blah 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 uh, I said could have been killed I could have been killed just within the last 30 days there was a shooting that happened on the lovely plantation right here in Seattle shooting happened right across the street nearly or I think it was right at a dozen shots fired thankfully no one was killed they fired into a residence 
this shooting, apparently I walked right past these shooters like minutes before this happened. And I felt something, Gavin DeBecker, the gift of fear. I felt something was off. Like they were up to no good. It just, it just didn't seem correct. Something seemed wrong. Uh, I wasn't sure what it was. I didn't see anything incorrect. I saw them. I was going, I just went out to put things in the trash. I talked about that. That's all I'm doing. Let me go throw this out. Boom. Go back in, being tidy, cleaning up. That's on the, you know, four ways of time and energy. I go back in the house. Now, and this talk about lag of time. So this happened uh, Thursday morning. It's not until like three days later that I find out, oh, there was a shooting. And apparently they had people have cameras. And everybody has a camera in their driver. They were like, you walked right by the people that we think did the shooting. Did you see anything? <sighs> so now it's you got to give eyewitness testimony for something that happened three days ago that you didn't even know this is going to be connected to a shooting. Now you got to think back and try to remember. <sighs> Come on. Come on. I'm I, that right there for something so important where you would want to give every bit of detail like can you remember the car and plus it was dark too nope car details nothing absolutely nothing other than something seemed incorrect about their presence untoward suspicious and turned out to be correct thankful I got away but eyewitnesses man I mean who is you know walking around with a photographic memory and then paying attention that this is going to be important remember exactly what they have on remember exactly if they've got scars or you know what type of facial hair or if they didn't have facial hair or what color their hair was and you know who's gonna come on and then you gotta remember that for three years get out of here uh, overexposure. Number one, at the next recess, Pratt told his attorneys, like I said, we're fighting the whole damn government. Don't forget all the other areas of people activity in the global system of racism, white supremacy are also against you. Absolute endless resources. We saw that in the Simpson trial, too. Uh, let's see. didn't get that far yet we will stop right there uh, we'll pick up we'll have to come back to his notes uh, once we get to the second audio number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate folks who have thoughts uh, let's see Line should be open star six one if you have commentary to share. Greetings, can I be heard? Hello, can I be heard? Oh. I heard both of you. Uh, let's see. I'll wait. I'll wait. Okay. I can uh, wait. Emmy is yielding. Uh, let's see. We'll nab Helen in New York. Yes, ma'am. Hi, DTR. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm reading the book with the book club, and the part about um, uh, Pratt, when he said about uh, the clip and the 
something about the gun and you know you know that there's a difference. Um why didn't um Hollow Peter Hollow Peter why didn't he bring in a firearm analyst um examiner about the gun part? Um there's another part of the book where it says, um, perhaps because of their age difference, Pratt and Hollow Peter have become slightly estranged during the ordeal of the trial. I I didn't get that. I didn't get any evidence of that from reading the book, um, that they were estranged. And um yeah, and I was like, uh, how come Pratt knows more about ballistics than his lawyers? Um, I understand that he was in the army, um, he was a veteran. Of, of course, that's why he knows. But you know, the lawyers should have done their um, uh, research and found someone who knows all firearms to fight his case. Um, especially Hollow Peter. Um, there's another part. The two attorneys agreed that there was an odor, but couldn't trace the origin. No, only one attorney, Hollow Peter, knows the origin, aka racism. That's what I wrote down, and there was an odor. Here, white people go making racism sound like osmosis, and like white people, a.k.a. Holopeter, um, is not ignorant. And uh, that's all I want to say for now. <laughs> Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, very, that's why my definition of white supremacy racism, a global system of people who classify themselves as white that is done all the time they will say racism is out there it's in the atmosphere the stench there's a there's a paper I think Farrell Winfrey wrote a paper uh, a stench in the nostrils of God white Jesus talking about racism like all these flowery terms uh, to make racism, white supremacy, anything other than what individuals classified as white do. Uh, to your questions, uh, the ballistics, important point. I think <clears throat> our investor who wrote in and talked about they don't have a Barry Sheck on this team, apparently. Uh, somebody who is waiting and that's all they do is go through the science and can spend a whole week uh, deconstructing and asking questions uh, and apparently this attorney is not knowledgeable uh, in this field uh, either he's incompetent or whatever the case uh, practicing racism whatever uh, in terms of Hollapeter, uh who maybe Johnny Cochran would have asked more questions they said he got called away during the session so maybe he would have asked uh, questions uh, if he'd had the opportunity but uh, yeah, or maybe he would have uh, even asked Pratt. Pratt was saying, hey, I'm a, a Vietnam veteran. I know ballistics. I know firearms. And hey, this is the line of question. They said the same thing they said with O.J. Simpson. You are a part of the team. Use your brain computer to come up with questions and analysis to help us in your defense. Maybe if Cochran had been there, you know, they could have communicated about that and handled things differently. But oh, well, uh, the strength that's one I think Jack Olson could have included more detail. There are a few points in the text where I felt that way. This is one where he talks about an apparent estrangement between Cochran and Hollapeter, but he doesn't explain like there's no conflict, there's no argument mm -hmm. between the two, like they're not name calling each other, like he could have just a few sentences, like, you know, where they had maybe it was a difference in strategy, uh, where 
where Cochran starts to think, yeah, maybe it is the FBI. Maybe they did set you up here. Maybe something is going on. Maybe holler people. I, I don't know. He should have given us more detail. Uh, shame on Mr. Olson. Do a better job. Uh, let's see. Much obliged, uh, Helen in New York. Uh, Emmy, uh, thank you for your patience. Namaste. Got to practice before the program today. Uh, proceed. Namaskar and greetings, beautiful people. Um, my two comments are, uh, I'm, you know, getting ready for this. I don't have notes, but two things that struck me as interesting for myself is one, the other know that maybe everyone didn't know that the FBI was targeting the Black Panthers, but I kind of felt like that was just common knowledge at the time, that everything that was going on, it was known that white people were really attacking them and known that it was the FBI, known that it was the government. So I'm kind of sitting here like, huh, really? So all is like, and it really is happening. It really is covert. It really was hidden. And people really just did not know. And wow, you know, because for me, you know, we know now. But I'm just struck by that. That's a personal note. And then the other kind of wow moment I'm having is um, all of his, like his freedom and his exoneration or him not being found guilty is all predicated on whether or not this man has a beard, has facial hair. That seems like such a small, small detail for your life. And um, I just, you know, I think in my mind maybe there's an image of a murder trial being bigger than whether or not someone's hand fits in a glove or whether or not they have facial hair. But as much time as the book spent on call, flying people <laughs> from Algiers to confirm that, yes, this man always has facial hair. And this is what we're really, really talking about. This is what can get you your freedom. It's, for me, it's just I don't even know what kind of conclusion I can make about the system of racism, white supremacy on that, um, knowing that. But I'm just kind of baffled and shocked about that. Um, like, wow, you know, but, um, anywho, that was what I wanted to say. So thank you for listening to me. Much obliged Emmy, uh, to your first point, And that is crucial, both of them really. But, uh, the first one that is almost a cliche in turn. I mean, you can pick almost anybody from that time period um, Julian Bond I took his class like I talked to him directly um, Bobby Seale Huey P. Newton Geronimo Pratt Johnny Cochran Dr. King you can pick pretty much anybody that you'd like Kathleen Cleaver, Eldridge Cleaver anybody what I have heard them say repeatedly some of them in that documentary ready for uh, excuse me vanguard of the revolution that we started with today they had some understanding that yes the FBI is out to get us the police are out to get us they just didn't have an understand I think Kathleen Cleaver said that specifically we didn't have an idea of just in terms of how deep the sedition was like how entrenched they were how much they were responsible for we just didn't know we greatly underestimated to i guess to some we greatly underestimated 
what they were doing against us in a variety of what they just had no idea from informants uh, and even that like it's so embarrassing like to hear people like what is it we're talking 50 years saying do you think I'm just used people that do you think Helen's an informant do you do you think Roger's an informant it's been 50 years and this I mean it is amazing to hear black I mean people who you would think these are the experts like they know racism and them out of their own mouth sounding like Neely Fuller Jr. still learning what I just say about being humble buddy everybody who is alive the people who are dead I guess you know that's humility for you but the people who are still alive they are all very humble in saying we thought we knew we had no idea Pratt included Cochran included Gus T included as to the second but like yes I hope people because at some points in the book they just take it straight from the transcript and it's just going back and forth about what's this person's name is that his last name Eli is that his first name is that his last name just going back and forth like yes those type of very tiny little details did he have a mustache was it a shadow a goatee clean shaven those type of little itty bitty details might indeed be enough to get you the gas chamber yep absolutely <laughs> like uh we're in words because they talk about that too like these witnesses have been, it's been three years have these witnesses been coached in terms of what to say they're going to call this everybody is going to be on the same page and call this a bush jacket a safari jacket like as opposed to people said trench coat before and all this other stuff like yes those type of little fine details can be the difference and Johnny Cochran said you got that suit you are going out of here in style and we're going to go do some yoga and get me a smoothie and you know do some detoxing from all this or donating it to the goodwill and you know hope for the best hope I don't get uh, sodomized by train wreck remember that from earlier in the book Uh, much obliged uh, Emmy Uh, let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed can I be heard uh, retired firefighter in Florida who said he was looking forward to this text we'll see if that's still true about a quarter of a way in <laughs> yes sir uh yeah i i was just i just had some thoughts on the uh on the on the uh the, the trial itself uh, including uh well the two trials the one with uh uh mr Cochran with this particular trial and uh the OJ Simpson trial and I I would say that uh this particular trial for him uh of course was much more challenging uh because of his uh, uh lack of knowledge on on uh something much more than the state of California versus Geronimo Pratt it actually what the government <laughs> versus Geronimo Pratt and uh Mr. Pratt was was uh mentioning to it mentioning it to him 
but even Mr. Pratt didn't have a a clear understanding of what was going on. Uh, it never did come to uh, clarity until some uh, quote unquote radical white people broke into an office. I think in what seventy three, something like that. What? No, no, it was somewhere in the seventies, and they obtained this information that we know as coin temporal. Uh, and something similar, something similar to what ended up be, being identified as cold and temporal, had been going on since Marcus Garvey. Uh, I, I would say that you know, uh, even the, with the Nation of Islam, where Elijah Muhammad was was thoroughly investigated by the government uh, after World War II, uh, you had a situation. I can't remember that white guy that was doing this this communist thing, but after that they started focusing on black people with Dr. King, and and then up came you know the Black Panther Party along the way. I'm kind of like skipping over the whole lot of lot of things, uh, uh, but uh, uh, they didn't have a full they didn't have a full understanding of that uh, because had he known he would have been he it would have been much it, it would have would required to have a much more extensive uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, legal practice on the government itself and what they were doing at the time. Uh, and, and now we see it. The only thing they really had as far as in defense on that subject matter was, was uh, the wife of the wife of, uh, of, of, uh, one of the top officials, she's also with the top official, Kathleen, uh, Kathleen Cleaver, to come back from Algiers uh, to make some sort of testimony that Mr. Pratt was not where the uh, state of California said he was supposed he was at, uh, and that that is very thin, you know, as far as that concerned. Uh, mind you, now other powerful white people, otherwise that could have been solicited, could have helped a lot more by by revealing uh, some of the things that actually was happening uh, in and around uh, Mr. Pratt and the Black Panther Party in whole. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, the uh, files were stolen from the FBI office in media, Pennsylvania in March of 1971. Right. So that's two years before we're at, right. where we're at in the trial in 1973. So there was some knowledge like, wow, Cointel pro is up and the FBI is doing something. But even with that, they still didn't know. So I mean, yeah. And, and like, we are talking now like 50 years, like the amount of books that are like uh, documentaries and books. And there's a lot more files and freedom of information. Like there's a lot more data and that data has been uh, kind of synthesized, analyzed. So uh, there's a much better, even some of that is in this book. Once we get for because this book takes so much time, it's 25 years uh, that, as I said, Pratt and Huey P. Newton will end up in greater confinement and they'll be going like, wow. We are still learning. Look at this. This is amazing. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah. And I mean, if they had been able to do that earlier, maybe things could have been different or maybe not. But man, uh, let's see. 
uh, any other folks with commentary star six one I'll make sure I get to some of my notes as well um, let's see scroll back up through some of the earlier chapters okay All right, so yeah, great point. I think our investor who already brought it up, uh, Barry Sheck, uh, some other resources uh, to deal with the ballistics and lots of the uh, evidence. I mean, if you have Barry Sheck, maybe they can respond to the photo incident that's gonna that came up later or will be coming up later. Lots of things, more resources. Hey, uh, let's see. With the O.J. Simpson trial, they did pile up lots of police officers, uh, the primary officers who were at the scene. They did all that. In this trial, Cochran is wondering, why didn't they do that? Standard prosecutorial technique was to pad the record with police evidence and official witnesses in an effort to impress the jurors with the sheer bulk but Kaluskian hadn't followed that pattern Cochran wondered why uh, and why he avoided calling the top investigators on the case why hadn't he taken the testimony of Sergeant Ray Callahan of the LAPD's Panther unit a cop who was so personally involved that he volunteered to fly to Texas to put the handcuffs on Pratt important questions and major difference in how the O.J. Simpson trial uh, the prosecutors decided to conduct that trial uh, let's see all of this I felt was so uh, embarrassing where you have black people victims of racism who joined an organization the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in order to ostensibly replace white supremacy with justice help black people a black male veteran is on trial for a murder you know he didn't commit he couldn't have committed this trial because he was here with me in Oakland but I'm not going to testify because I'm going to get kicked out of the party like are you serious or I can't testify because I'm scared now, any, I respect anybody who says that they're scared you know they have whatever reasons but I mean whoa <laughs> what what we started this out we were policing the police 10 point program how did it get that we are calling a black Vietnam veteran a jackanape and we know he didn't commit this murder but not only is it just I'm not going to testify which is pretty shameless in and of itself but I'm also going to threaten and browbeat other people you had better not go help that coon what in the world <laughs> I just said yesterday it is about ending mistreatment like that should be a guiding force we're going to use logic revealing truth too I mean like wait a minute now if we know he didn't commit this crime like just in the business of revealing truth like <laughs> what in the world uh, but not being about mistreatment like we <laughs> just end the mistreatment that's all we have to do. We don't have to do all the brother and sister and being into a lot of 
uh, foolishness and symbolism and right on this and all power to the people and let me get my leather jacket and a whole lot of other crazy handshakes just end the mistreatment that would speed things up like light years and then we don't have to pretend black brother black brother black brother black get out of here uh let's see a fatwa UAP Newton's fatwa against Pratt I mean are you serious Jesus let's see uh get some other notes no name calling uh the best offense move forward so Johnny Cochran he calls uh Margaret Morgan Morgan excuse me she did the identikit sketch with Barbara Reed, the hobby shop owner. So he calls her to the scan stand and he uh, asks her, Mrs. Reed describes suspect number two. That's supposedly Geronimo Pratt as uh, the two of the men were preparing the composite male Negro Morgan Red, 23 to 29 years old. And I said, wow, it's 1973 where I guess they did this back in 68, but still male negro like it had been James Brown I think black and proud had you know been out and Malcolm X and Nation of Islam blackity this black power black 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 like I know negro was still on the census for like decades up until recently as a matter of fact but I mean even still like by 73 that's a little like eh? <laughs> on a witness stand like negro okay might as well be nigger in my opinion uh, let's see He, I thought Johnny Cochran, he did a, a great job. He points out with the same with, uh, witness, Margaret Morgan, uh, enforcement officer, uh, that she's been talking with the prosecuting attorney. And we had the same thing in the OJ trial where they, they do all this uh, prepping uh, of witnesses. They got to do all this prep time with Mark Furman, make sure he doesn't slip and call somebody a nigger and get your story straight and all the rest of it in trial. Some of that, I mean, they're doing a lot of... Um, pussyfooting the language being euphemistic if you will as opposed to just saying it's lying they're being deceptive uh, you want to witness I mean it would be one thing uh, if you say hey I want you to be precise don't say you got up early in the morning say you got up at 6 o'clock or between 6 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. you know be, but that's one thing but I mean if it's total switchery and then racist switchery from I saw this person and he had a trench coat on or an Eisenhower jacket and now it's switched to Oh, he had a bush jacket and everybody is saying bush jacket or safari jacket. Like what? And then he comes in this time is your discussion with Mr. Kalustian prosecuting attorney this morning. Did you ever have occasion to discuss this conversation of Mrs. Reed's wherein she said she was unhappy with the person's mouth? Yes. You remember that all this time, the last three and a half years. Yes. I remember she was unhappy with the foils. Like, that coaching to be able to go in and talk with them like oh yeah make sure you say it just this way and she was unhappy with the sketch from the beginning she didn't think it was realistic it doesn't that's why it doesn't look like Pratt not that we got the wrong person just it wasn't a very good sketch and you know that's that's the conversation that I remember us having precisely from three years ago 
Uh, let's see. Next. Oh my God. Uh, so they're saying we're hoping, begging that this feud will be called off and they'll come help out. Because they're saying even if we get a few people, Kathleen Cleaver and a few others, it looks kind of odd. Like, why are you saying he was at this big meeting with all of these executive Panther members and none of them are coming to testify? Like, why is that? It does look odd. Like, are they not telling the truth or what's going on here? Uh, so he says they're wishing that this feud would be over and they're going to come save the day. It doesn't happen. Uh, word from Oakland was that Newton was still adding names to his enemies list. He wasn't likely to provide an amnesty for the jackanape Pratt. <sighs> End mistreatment. No name calling. And I would love to see the enemies list. My suspicion is that it would be a lot of individuals classified as black. I would be very doubtful it was going to be uh, white people, uh, the white Cointel pro agents, maybe some of the white jailers that he had to endure for years in Southern California. I seriously doubt it. It's going to be more jack and apes like Vietnam veteran Geronimo Pratt. Man, oh man. Uh, I And make sure I get in. There's also, if you watch All Power to the People, great documentary on the Panthers, Cointel Pro, and white supremacy in general, uh, where white people brag about taking credit for Huey P. Newton conducting himself in this manner uh, and saying they had him in greater confinement facing the gas chamber. That has a huge impact on your psychology. We'll hear more about that. Hey, I don't know if he had a toilet too. He might have been having to urinate and sleep in his own ways too. But they bragged uh, about the psychological warfare that they conducted on Huey P. Newton and how that changed his behavior. I think this, all of this, calling Pratt a Jack and Ape and his enemies list and all the rest, all of that, the drug usage, reflect again what they didn't know. We knew they were against us, but we just didn't know the extent of how they were against us. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, man, I'm not with the four wallism, uh, not with the whole group thing, uh, curmudgeon that I am. They say, uh, they got Richard Stanley Johns. Uh, this is a former Julio Butler's former roommate. And he talks about how Pratt had facial hair to Emmy's point. Uh, and that he, he talked about Julio's assault on a Panther named Bobby for refusing to cut a dog's throat and how they knocked quite a few teeth out over this. Apparently <sighs> again, we're supposed to be against mistreating black people why would I need to join an organization and pay dues and march and y'all got rules and I gotta read books or whatever the the hoop jumping procedure is just to then so I can go and maul and bruise some other black people like we could have just stayed in the gang or you know whatever there's no need for this at all if we're just gonna do the exact same thing and again 
this is the type of behavior sometimes that so-called informants were known for get in and escalate to criminal things you know that will further so-called tarnish the organization or give justification for police intervention uh, let's see that's Judas and the black messiah right there uh, let's see Ter- another terrible movie <laughs> let's see uh, 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 uh tarnish that is in the word guide to not use they say Mrs. Reed's uh, let me give the whole sentence here Geronimo Kenneth Olson's identification of Geronimo Pratt and less of Barbara or he thought little this is the uh, defense expert who is Buckout he said he thought little of these identifications to the psychologist Buckout Olson's identifications were weakened by the stress of the robbery and shooting and Mrs. Reed's were tarnished by racial stereotyping and her cock sureness I said wow we did all that talking about homoeroticism uh, last week and why wow, he, he said her cock sureness and they talked about how she would be so confident and incorrect in her identifications but and this is after years have passed uh, let's see next I thought this was important as well. Cochran said he wanted to make sure to uh, emphasize that the person who composed these sketches was a part of the LAPD's Panther unit uh, and that this is the same guy uh, who Eckstein, he was so uh, John Detective John Eckstein that he was so emphatic about Pratt's guilt that he volunteered to go to Texas to put the cuffs on him and all the rest of it had done the uh, he did the composite sketch and it's hey if you did this sketch if you were involved in this case at all how is it that you didn't you know identify this guy from early on how was it why would it have taken three years you're a part of the Panther unit you know who Geronimo Pratt is you see these guys you've seen their pictures why wouldn't you have come forward immediately I think Pratt had said that before his face was all over the news with all these Panther shootouts and everything else why wouldn't Mrs. Reed or some of these other so-called witnesses why would they have come forward sooner having seen his you know image oh my gosh that's the guy who put a gun in our face like logical question I would think anyway says uh, and then them not answering questions buckets of words not answering questions Uh, let's see when he got Morgan on the stand uh, he asked or he got Eckstein on the stand as well and asked about these drawings and these people are saying that hey I looked at it and I see the initials there but that's not me I don't know who did the sketch wasn't me doesn't look like anything I'm involved with everybody is somehow ignorant or unable to answer questions lying the number one weapon uh, in the system is deception Uh, let's see and then it comes up right again you have Eckstein on the stand so you all do this picture identification Olson picks out the wrong guy uh, when you do this uh, and then you all do it again and finally he picks uh, Pratt he says well can, is it possible that we can get the pictures that you showed when he picked someone other than Pratt and he says uh, oh I don't know I don't know where the pictures are he says so if we needed them later do you think you could get them for us he says well it's possible if I can get my hands on them. like what is <laughs> when are people so sloppy with evidence especially exculpatory evidence where it's just lost I don't know where it is yes 
can't keep anything at the lake. They got sticky fingers, you know, down in the evidence locker. Like, do what? Let's see. Mm-mm-mm. Oh man, thought this was a great one as well. So they call uh, Penwell to the stand to testify, and Michael David Penwell uh, to testify. He's a former Black Panther. I think he also testifies about facial. Yep, of course, facial hair and all the rest of it. Uh, and so then he says that, you know, he finds out that they're charging G with murder from an FBI agent. Now, apparently this is important. The prosecution, they do not want any uh, in uh, any suggestion, any implication that the FBI is somehow involved in this case, which in my view, why would that be? I mean, you've got a grisly murder. Uh, one of the suspects has fled the state, so he's he's wanted. Why would the FBI not be involved in bringing this fellow to justice? The FBI was involved in the O.J. Simpson case tangentially, so why would that be a problem? Just you know, acknowledging. And I mean, it's just that they talk to a witness. What's the big deal? They go back and forth, uh, which uh, I love this whole exchange where uh, Kalustian gets upset. You know, gosh darn well, the FBI did not come uh, to visit you. They've never been involved in this case. Uh, and then he responds, I saw their identification. <laughs> and then he drops it completely like, dang, Negris. Uh, and I love Johnny Cochran. The humility probably helped him be a better attorney by the time we get to O.J. Simpson, uh, where he says, man, you were on track from the beginning. You always claim that somebody fixed this case. Wouldn't it be something if the if it was the FBI? And even there, see, it's still like he's not saying. Well, you can listen to how he sounds here. Listen to how Johnny Cochran sounds by the time we get to the end of the book. Like you will see the learning curve of Johnny L. Cochran Jr. That's what I mean. It's amazing. And this again, this is two years after the the information has started to come out about the Quintel Pro uh, program and what they were doing and all the rest of it. And it's still not that Geronimo Pratt said this is worthy of much greater study. He said that's my understanding. My conclusion is that it doesn't seem that people really understand what this program was about, the impact that it had. It doesn't really seem like people are well informed. I agree. Uh, Continuing. Oh, I think that's it. I think that's it. Uh, We can get to the second audio segment unless anybody has something briefly they need to share. Getting to the segment, audio segment. Uh, This is Jack Olson, Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt, audio segment two. Chapter 21, His Own Best Witness. There'd never been a doubt that Geronimo would testify. In typical criminal trials, the downside to such an appearance was that it opened up the subject of the defendant's past life, including prior criminal activity. In Pratt's opinion, his minor criminal record was the result 
of a police campaign of harassment easily countered with facts and logic and his most heinous offense had been breaking a high school window did you go to a hobby shop in the city of Santa Monica Charles Hollapeter asked no the answer carried to the back wall of the big courtroom I didn't and on the night of December 18, 1968, did you go to any tennis court in the city of Santa Monica? No, I did not. Have you ever been in the tennis court that was described in the evidence in this case? No, I haven't. Have you ever been in the hobby shop that was testified to no I have not Hollapeter and Cochran had advised their client to avoid panther rhetoric right or wrong the BPP's rallying cries might annoy white jurors as usual Geronimo had put up an argument this trials about the Black Panthers. This is a political trial, Cochran. The jury doesn't know that, Cochran had told him. We don't want any of that off-the-pig stuff to slip into the record. The only pigs I ever wanted to off, Pratt had fired back, were the pigs who wanted to off me. On the stand, he refused to deride the organization that had shamed and expelled him. When Hollapeter asked if he'd served in the United States Army, he answered, United States Imperialist Army. Correct. After that, he settled down and followed his attorney's advice, providing direct answers and avoiding the temptation to volunteer information. Hollapeter inquired about his relationship with the man who'd heard his repeated confessions. Question. Did Julius Butler become a close friend of yours? Answer. No. We never became close friends. No. Question. Was there ever any time that you sought him out to ask his advice? Answer, no. Question, was there ever a time when you looked him up in order to confide in him, tell him things? Answer, no. Question, now in around the middle of December 1968, what was your feeling and regard for Mr. Butler, if any? Answer. I kind of suspected the dude all along, you know. He always seemed suspicious to me. After Bunchy was killed, he was coordinating some activities on the west side and he would go to, he would pull all kinds of sadistic acts, you know, and with people who were supposed to be working with him. 
Pratt testified that Butler had knocked out one young panther's teeth and forced two brothers to their knees, kicked one in the head because of some nickel and dime thing. He told of going to Butler's apartment and finding the high school boy, Ollie Taylor, sitting down and he was bloody. His whole face was bloody. Something was swollen on his face. He said he had taken Butler aside, lectured him about brutality, and relieved him of his position. Right there? Hollipeter asked. Right. He was placed on house arrest. Pratt denied discussing the tennis court shootings with the person he'd expelled from the party. Nor had he ever introduced Butler to a man named Tyrone. He provided more detail about his Pontiac GTO, the GOAT, and how it had been converted to a Panther vehicle with the BPP making the monthly bank payments. He said the party had arranged to have the car repainted as a result of a visit by Eldridge Cleaver. You see, he got in the car and ever since then it was hot and every time you drive even around the corner you would get stopped by the police. Hollipeter asked, so the car became well known? Oh yes, and then after Cleaver came down again and then at Bunchy's funeral, man, the car, it would be stopped all the time by the police and then they would kick dents in it and pull the distributor wires loose and would arrest people, you know? And it was depleting our funds, the party funds, and hardly anyone would want to ride in the car, you know, because they would get arrested by the police. After the inevitable exchange about facial hair, my mustache was pretty heavy. Hollipeter turned to the subject of the 45 caliber handgun that had been recovered from the Huggins house the day of the Campbell Hall killings. Was that your gun? The lawyer asked. No, it wasn't. When you went into the Huggins home, did you see that gun there? No, I didn't. Have you ever had that gun in your possession? No. Pratt reiterated that he'd been in the Bay Area at the time of the tennis court shootings that Bunchy Carter had provided his airline ticket to San Francisco and he'd taken a taxi to a Black Panther storefront office on Fillmore Street. He'd spent the night at a nearby Panther pad and met a woman named Jackie Horton the next day. I was with her most of the time I was up there. He ran down an informal list of meetings and social gatherings and said he joined some of the Northern Panthers in selling the party newspaper on street corners. I went to a breakfast program they had at Father Neal's church and then we found out that Franco had gotten killed. It was about a week or so after I had gotten up there. So about what date would that be, Hollipeter asked. 
I don't know. I heard that he got killed on the 19th of December 1968, the day after the tennis court incident, but I, it was about a week after I had gotten, it was a while after I'd gotten up there. He said he'd returned to Los Angeles a day or two after Christmas. Hollapeter showed him the Polaroid photo introduced by his brother Charles and Geronimo remembered that it had been taken at a December 1968 birthday party for his nephew. I think it was the 27th or 28th. The 28th. It wasn't long after Christmas, you know. His birthday is on Christmas. The direct examination was completed at 4.15 p.m. On Thursday, July 6, when trial resumed at 2.40 the next afternoon, the prosecutor set about showing the jury that Geronimo Pratt was a liar. How tall are you? he asked. Five six. Have you ever been as tall as five seven? Not that I recall, no. What is your date of birth? September 13, 1947. Have you ever given a different date of birth? Hollapeter objected. Immaterial. Irrelevant. The judge told Pratt, you may answer the question. Yes, he said, I have given other ages. Kalustian produced a copy of Geronimo's California driver's license showing a date of birth of September 13, 1942 and asked, did you supply that information? No, I don't know where it came from, but Pratt had to affirm that the signature looked like his. The prosecutor resumed in the same scattershot style he'd employed with other witnesses, jumping from subject to subject. Cochran remembered his opponent as one of the brightest students at Loyola Law School and presumed that the disjointedness was deliberate. Mr. Pratt, Kalustian said, when you were in the service, did you ever have occasion to carry a 45 as part of your duties? Yes. Question. Are you familiar with the operation of a 45 caliber automatic? Answer. Yes. I'm very familiar with a 45. Question. Do you know how to field strip a 45, put it back together, and take it apart? That kind of thing. Answer. Yes. Question. Can you interchange the barrel of a 45 caliber automatic? Answer. Yes. As Cochran watched from the defense table, he realized that his old classmate was employing the courtroom version of a basketball full court press in an attempt to score points with the jury. First, he'd walk toward the witness, Cochran wrote later, then move back toward the jury. He'd stand facing them, letting them read his facial expressions to Pratt's responses under attack. This created a type of split-screen effect. On one screen, 
the jury saw the prosecutor's face, on the other the defendant's. Each told a different story. The jury got to see both the point and the counterpoint of the hard-line questioning. Cochran wasn't offended. He'd been taught that the ends of justice required aggressive advocacy by both sides. Besides, he was pleased to see that the ex-paratrooper who'd weathered two hours of battle seemed unfazed by the prosecution attack. Our confidence surged, Cochran wrote later. But pride goeth before a fall. As the afternoon session wore on, all parties began to show strain. Kalustian skipped back to the visit to Oakland at the time of the shootings and asked a series of questions about how much money Pratt had taken with him on the trip. About forty or fifty dollars. How long he'd planned to stay. I don't think we had any pre-plans. Why he hadn't used an airport bus. I didn't know how where he'd been on the evening of December 18. I think I was at David Hilliard's house. What he did after the evening with Hilliard, I was brought by this party with a sister and we left. We went to some pad and I went to sleep. What he did the next day, we talked about the contradictions that was prevalent in the society and other probings of Pratt's memory. At an intense sidebar, Cochran was making a point when Kalustian complained, Could you talk a little softer? I'm sorry, Cochran said. Then Kalustian complained that the testimony had become embroiled in semantics in use of terms with which I am not familiar and he, Pratt, is a lot more familiar with than I am. He accused Pratt of being vague. He stops and starts about six times. That's my problem. Judge Parker informed the prosecutor that he was getting too far afield. After the jury returned, a long colloquy ensued on the difference between black houses and panther houses. Pratt drew giggles from the spectators when he explained that it isn't anything strict about either house, you know. Like, for instance, a panther pad, say if Johnny, say Johnny Cochran would come by and wants to stay overnight, he would be welcome. He hesitated and added, You too, Mr. Hollipeter, excuse me. He didn't include Kalustian. In Pratt's third hour on the stand, the questioning hotted up. The subject was the scene in Butler's house on the night of the Ali Taylor beating. Pratt had testified that Julio was drunk, you know, and that was a violation of the rules. Kalustian said Julio couldn't even be drunk in his own home under the rules of the organization. You see, man, Geronimo began speaking slowly as though to a student. 
we are socialists, you know? We relate to socialist principles, and if Julio wanted to relate to selfishness, he didn't have to join the organization. Do you understand? And no, the prosecutor said. My only question, Mr. Pratt, was, I'm trying to make you understand. The judge listened to a few more acidic exchanges and said, Mr. Kalustian, I see it is after 4.30. We will recess until tomorrow. On the next day, Friday, July 7, 1972, the prosecutor took the defendant through the perfunctory questioning about his relationship with Julius Carl Butler and Pratt seized on the opportunity to remind the jury of his sworn enemy's rage about his expulsion from the Black Panther Party. I got a phone call at Central Headquarters after Julio was expelled in which he said he would kill my sister and my brother and my people. He accused Butler of having a very arrogant attitude, like he wasn't subject to criticism, that a lot of people in leadership positions weren't capable of carrying out those functions because they didn't know how to kill. To the bafflement of the defense attorneys, Kalustian introduced the subject of the birthday party photograph. He wanted to know if Pratt had seen the picture immediately after it had been taken. Yes, Geronimo answered. Was the picture taken by your brother with a Polaroid camera? I think it was with... Yeah, I think so. I remember seeing that picture in his album. The prosecutor asked if Pratt had ever threatened Butler. No, he answered. I never did. Kalustian said he had no further questions. The trial was winding down and Cochran and his co-counsel were still scrabbling about the prominent Panthers who could confirm Pratt's visit to Oakland. They made contact with Jackie Horton, the woman Geronimo had described as his frequent companion during his stay in the Bay Area. Now it was time for her to testify and she was missing. Cochran assured the judge that she will be here sometime this afternoon. Kalustian was surprisingly obliging about the delay and spent the remainder of the Friday session in another long plea to the judge about Julio Butler's insurance letter. With the jury out of the courtroom, he made a statement that would be quoted often in future proceedings. He spoke of the alleged confessions Pratt had made to Butler and added, if the jury believes Julio Butler, regardless of whether they believe or disbelieve the identification witnesses, Mr. Pratt is guilty. The case is over if they believe that. Judge Parker adjourned court for the weekend. 
on Monday morning, the final defense witness identified herself as Jacqueline Horton Wilcotts, a former Black Panther from the San Francisco Bay Area. She could be a decisive witness if the jury believed her story and her credibility was crucial. There had been almost no trial preparation. She'd arrived in Los Angeles the night before. Jailers had given her three minutes with her old friend Pratt before hustling him away. In a timid little voice, the young African-American told the jurors that she'd served as Pratt's driver on his December visit to Oakland and had taken him to parties and BPP meetings. At the time, she said he'd worn a Fu Manchu. Just after Christmas, she'd driven him to the San Francisco airport for his trip home. On cross-examination, Kalustian asked how she'd first learned that Pratt was going to trial. I ran into this sister on the street, the woman replied, and like, she had been down here and she told me. Wilcotts admitted that she was in the courtroom to help a brother out. When she replied to a string of questions by nodding and saying, uh-huh, the prosecutor said sharply, the reporter doesn't get your uh-huh's, Mrs. Wilcotts. Her shy manner made her seem almost reluctant to testify. After she told the jury that she'd seen Pratt in the Bay Area 20 or 30 times, Cochran asked a few questions on redirect examination, and then he had nothing further. You may step down, the judge said. The young woman got to her feet and asked, Do I have to be sworn out? The courtroom erupted in laughter. Judge Parker rapped her gavel and said, Step down, ma'am. Then she turned to the bailiff and said, Will you clear the courtroom if there is going to be any further levity? With his climax witness reduced to the role of court jester, Johnny Cochran announced, The defense rests. Chapter 22 The Trap Springs During the final phase of the trial, Richard Kalustian called Sergeant Dwayne Rice and re-established that Julio Butler had given him a sealed letter marked, Open in the Event of My Death. Hollapeter and Cochran were annoyed that the subject was being raised again. They still regarded it as a blatant excuse to bootstrap Butler's shaky testimony by suggesting that his charges against Pratt were supported by a written document that he'd prepared as self-protection and never intended to make public. The defense attorneys were certain that they weren't hearing the whole truth. On cross-examination, Hollapeter asked Dwayne Rice if he and Butler were personal friends. That's correct, sir, the sergeant answered in the crisply professional style he'd established on direct examination. Hollapeter asked if Butler 
had ever named anyone who might have threatened his life. No, I don't think he named any particular person. Well, now, as a police officer and as a friend of Julio Butler's, you wanted to protect him, didn't you? I didn't want to see him killed, sir, if that's what you mean. Well, the lawyer said, what did you do, if anything, to prevent his being killed? Nothing, sir. On touchier matters, Hollipeter found Rice as guarded as some of the other police witnesses. Question. Did Julio Butler give you information about the community from time to time? Answer. I don't know in what context you mean that, sir. Question. Did he inform on people from time to time? Answer. No, sir, he didn't. Question. Didn't he tell you about any crimes or any problems going on? Answer. No, sir. We discussed some of the problems in general, but he didn't come to me as an informant. Question. He didn't act as an informant for you. Answer not during the time of our relationship prior to the time of my getting that letter sir question well I'm not sure I understand did he act as an informant after he gave you the letter answer I would have to clarify it is hard to answer that yes or no sir because of a lot of things I will have to qualify my answer. Question. Let me put it this way. Did he ever act as a police informant for you? Answer. Yes, he did, sir. Question. Did he do that before August 10th or after August 10th, 1969 or both before and after? Answer. I would say for approximately a week or so prior and I never saw him very much after he gave me the letter. Question. But he did give you information as a police informer. Answer. Yes, I think that is a fact. Question. Was he paid for that information? Answer. No, sir. As Kalustian stood up to begin redirect examination, Pratt whispered to Cochran, He's not telling the whole story. Julio wasn't just a part-time snitch. Cochran said, I think we got as close as we could. Pratt and his attorneys were surprised when Kalustian called a dignified man who identified himself as Joseph Oldfield, a technical manager at the Polaroid plant in Waltham, Massachusetts, the prosecutor asked, does the Polaroid Corporation have a method of coding the film they manufacture to determine the date 
of its manufacture? Yes, we do, Oldfield answered. He looked at the Charles Pratt photograph and identified it as our Type 107 black and white film. Then he added, we came on the market with this in 1963. Cochran thought, there's no contradiction. Charles took the picture at Christmas time, 1968. Now, on the picture, the prosecutor continued. I notice there are some numbers at the bottom. E933831. What do those numbers tell you? The first digit refers to the month of manufacture. This is an E, which would be the fifth month, which would mean that it was manufactured in May. The second digit is a nine, which refers to the year, which means it was manufactured in 1969. As the import of the technician's testimony began to sink in, a stunned silence came over the courtroom. If the coding was correct, the film hadn't existed until six months after the Christmas picture. In the second row, Charles Pratt shook his head in vigorous denial. Virginia Pratt frowned and whispered to her brother. At the defense table, Geronimo tried not to show his bewilderment. Behind his own poker face, Cochran wondered if he was hearing things. He thought, should I have checked that coding? Three different Pratt's had confirmed the date of the photo session. Each had seemed certain. The picture and the resulting testimony had added nothing crucial to the defense position. Ten witnesses, the two Pratt sisters, Charles Pratt, Julio Butler, Linda Red, Shirley Hewitt, LaBar Lyons, Kathleen Cleaver, Michael Penwell, and Jacqueline Wilcotts had affirmed that Geronimo had facial hair at the time of the shootings. No aspect of the case had been so heavily pounded into the jury's consciousness. Now, here was a Polaroid executive testifying in effect that the Pratts had lied in concert to betrust a point that had never been in doubt. Cochran couldn't remember a more frustrating moment in a courtroom. The defense lawyers held a whispered conference. An intensive cross-examination might only enhance the technician's testimony. The man certainly wasn't going to do a volt face on the witness stand and confess that he'd misinterpreted his own company's code. Hollapeter told the judge, we have no questions. The prosecution coup had taken less than 10 minutes. A bailiff escorted Kalustian's next rebuttal witness into the courtroom. For his second star turn, he was attired in slacks, dark scarf, and sports jacket, a reminder that style was his profession. The prosecutor asked him to remove his dark glasses and said, Do you know Sergeant Rice 
of the Los Angeles Police Department. Yes, Julius Butler said, I do. Is he a friend of yours? Yes, he is. Once again, the subject of the letter was opened and once again, it led to a long debate out of the presence of the jury. The judge finally allowed Kalustian to ask, did you have a conversation with Sergeant Rice regarding opening this envelope? Yes, Butler answered, I did. What did you say and what did he say regarding that particular item? Sergeant Rice stated to me that the Internal Affairs Bureau of the Los Angeles Police Department had instituted an investigation relevant to his being possibly subversive because of his relationship with me and the envelope and that as a personal friend he would not open the envelope and would take his chances on being persecuted or fired if I stated so and I told at which time I told him he had subjected himself enough for my friendship and to go ahead and open the envelope. Kalustian asked the cosmetician if he testified truthfully before the grand jury that indicted Pratt. Hollapeter called the question argumentative and Cochran called it self-serving. Hollapeter added, you can't prove the truth of a witness's testimony by asking him if he is truthful. Cochran took Butler on cross-examination and doubled back to the informer issue. You'd been an informant for Sergeant Rice, he asked. No. You never were an informant for Sergeant Rice? Not an informant, no. On redirect examination, Kalustian showed his sensitivity to the issue by asking, You have indicated that you said you never had been an informant for Sergeant Rice? That's correct, Butler answered. Did you ever supply Sergeant Rice information? You mean about the party? Well, any kind of information. Sergeant Rice was a confidant of mine but it was not in the sense of policeman and public relations, sir, a citizen and police relationship. Cochran wanted to jump up and yell, were you an informer or not? He listened as Kalustian asked, why did you use the words you never been an informant? Well, the connotation informant means a snitch and I have never been in the world a snitch. Cochran found it hard to conceal his contempt as he took over the questioning. He asked if Butler had ever given Sergeant Rice any information that hadn't been authorized or cleared by the Black Panther hierarchy. Butler paused, looked at the ceiling, looked at Kalustian and finally answered of what nature because when you are narrowing down information like that my conversations would falsify one thing 
but when you say what nature if you specify what nature then I'll answer you counsel Cochrane considered Butler's roundabout answer almost helpful jurors forgave lawyers for playing word games in a way that was their job but they were less likely to forgive sly witnesses the general presumption was that evasions and tergiversations by witnesses were aimed at concealing the truth surely these jurors could draw their own conclusions about the proprietor of mr julio's coiffures la dames hadn't they just heard sergeant rice testify that butler had indeed been an informer at least for a week or two cochran decided to finish up with an ancient trick of cross-examination simple questions in simple english he paused to make sure that every juror was paying close attention placed himself midway between the jury box and the witness and asked did you ever inform on anybody butler hesitated then said no you never did that no this time the answer was slightly more emphatic cochran nodded knowingly at the jurors and said i have nothing further later he wrote i looked over at our jury nine whites and three african-americans some of them gazed at butler with perplexity some with outright loathing none of them looked very happy charles pratt and his brother jack pleaded with cochran to let them testify in the final phase of testimony sir rebuttal jack now worked at systems development corporation as overnight supervisor of computer operations and he was hell-bent to educate the jury on the polaroid matter i know the whole history of that film he told cochran we buy that stuff by the case and go through it like water everybody takes home odds and ends that's where this film pack came from i'm the one who brought it home how come sdc uses so much film cochran asked we shoot polaroids of all the binary numbers the scientists come in and later and study the pictures what about the coding on the film packs they're coded in the future so the film looks fresh every manufacturer does that we get packs that are months off in the coding he paused i can explain all that so can i his older brother charles broke in and i'm the one they're gonna accuse of lying cochran had misgivings about putting either brother on the stand juries were dubious about complex explanations especially on behalf of loved ones the best witnesses followed the old rules don't complain don't explain don't volunteer just answer the questions
eventually it was the ultra dignified Charles who testified he stared straight at the jury box and announced in ringing tones that every word of his previous testimony had been true and accurate no doubt at all Hollapeter asked if the photo could have been taken a year earlier no Charles replied he was in service in Vietnam was your brother present in your home in December 1969 1970 1971 no he was in jail all three of those years the inference was plain the photograph could have been taken only at Christmas time 1968 in response to another Hollapeter question the oldest brother began his all-important explanation about the film and its coding Polaroids are used to take snapshots of the console of large computers so that when a breakdown occurs you can tell how core storage looked so there was quite a supply of black and white Polaroid film at the company that I worked for for 15 years Hollapeter interrupted the explanation with questions about other photographs of Charles Pratt's sons and somehow the attorney neglected to return to the key subject of film coding Charles was bursting to finish his explanation but was provided no opportunity Kalustian seemed to sense his advantage and limited his cross-examination to perfunctory questions context of white supremacy mm. finished up I was listening finished up my smoothie just in time <clears throat> sometimes things work out wonderful context of white supremacy the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate don't wait till the last minute so our investor continued we didn't get to get everything he wrote us before his own best witness number one Kalustian with the jury out of the courtroom quoted in future proceedings if the jury believes Julio Butler regardless of whether they believe or disbelieve the identification witnesses Mr. Pratt is guilty the case is over if they believe that another example of the defense's lack of resources if they could have hired a private detective as in the OJ trial they may have been able to do a better job of impeaching Butler's credibility for example Mark Furman however I suppose even with that the forces against Pratt were so monumental it would have not made it would not have made a difference they had Pat J McKenna for OJ uh, the trap springs number one Pratt and his attorneys were surprised when Kalustian called Joseph Oldfield a technical manager at the Polaroid plant if the coding was correct the film hadn't existed until six months after the Christmas picture the prosecution coup had taken less than 10 minutes I wonder if this witness should have been challenged or objected to by the defense 
was Oldfield known as a potential witness to the defense through pre-trial discovery. These so-called surprise witnesses usually just occur on TV dramas because of discovery requirements. I could be wrong since I am not a lawyer. I am no expert in jurisprudence either, but I do know in the OJ trial, there was lots of hue and cry, uh, hewing and cry uh, about uh, witnesses being called last minute and uh, often it would be the prosecution saying well they didn't give us enough time blah, 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 and that sort of thing uh, and everybody is supposed to know full uh, disclosure about witnesses and all the rest and not s- surprise witnesses at the last minute as he said so yeah it shouldn't have been something where they're totally blindsided like hey where did this guy come from what is he talking about that type of thing like that's generally not supposed to be happening uh, in a court of law uh, anywho, star six one. I am not a lawyer either, though. Star six one. If you have commentary, uh, let's see. Folks who have a hand up, uh, line should be open. I'll look out for other folks uh, as well. Uh, let's see. Helen, New York, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. I think Emmy's still with us. Uh, I'll nab other folks as I see hands. If you have commentary, proceed. folks just listening or maybe nothing stood out too much from second audio segment maybe can I be heard there's retired firefighter yes sir what was what was that uh, what was that issue exactly uh, where uh, Mr. Cochran thinks that uh, one of the uh, family members may have made some sort of mistake on uh, a on a date of a photograph. Am I correct on that? Well, they have this picture, and it's got uh, Mr. Pratt with his brother, and I guess it would be like his nephew, um, and they're all together uh, in Oakland. And I guess there's some sort of coding on the photograph, and so they bring in this uh, Polaroid employee. Oldfield, and uh, he says that according to this coding, he can decipher it, and so this would indicate that this uh, film is from 1969 and all the rest of it. And so, there's wait a minute, that can't be if it's from 69, then that's way after uh, what they're saying in 68. So that you know becomes a big to do. Like maybe this photograph is is you know tainted or maybe this photograph is from some period other some time other than what they said or you know maybe now we have reason to doubt it that was the issue yeah that that can cause that can cause problems because as we know in uh criminal trials uh it's uh doubt is very significant and uh you know so I mean, he already has uh, a lot of things against him by being a black male and, and under this type of circumstance uh, with the assistance that's not being admitted in the court with the assistance of the federal government on, on top of it. Uh, they, they, they can, the, 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 uh, the defense cannot afford to make many mistakes you know at all 
you know, and uh, so uh, I, I'm not saying that that uh, it have, it, I'm not saying that it's 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 uh, you know went it's gone way it's gone terrible as of yet, but it you know if that if they stick on stick on that you know it, it could be a possibility that uh, uh, on what caused the uh, some serious problems in the trial in his defense. I think. Absolutely. Doesn't take a whole lot uh, if you are a non-white person, especially Mr. Pratt. I mean, you're a member of this uh, notorious band of niggers. So, I mean, you've got about five strikes against you uh, already going into this. Uh, and he'd already been convicted of the gun charge. So not too much going well for him. Uh, it's not going to take a whole lot to get a conviction here. Nine, nine white jurors, three non-white. So uh, let's see other, other folks, anything else they want to make sure they share. Hello, may I be heard? Helen in New York. Yes, ma'am. Hi. While reading the book, I was thinking about, and it gave me flashbacks of when I was on jury duty and the judge, just like how um, they were saying, like when when the cops were bringing down a so-called eyewitness and they were like, oh, well, you know, I brought you down here. I hope you're not wasting my time and say little things that would kind of make you feel uncomfortable, um, pressured to uh, pick someone out. So when I did jury duty, um, the judge, before the case even started, the judge was like, well, this will be the most important um, decision of your life. And um, I don't know, it was how he was talking that, like, put a lot of pressure on us. And so I could understand a little bit um, how cops could, you know, pressure the people to um, point someone out. And um, I also wanted to note that uh, a Black Panther, I think he passed away. I'm still trying to find out information. I don't want to mess up his name. I'm going to spell his last name, A-C-O-L-I, Akoli, I think. And the first name is S-U-N-D-I-A-T-A. They're saying that he was convicted. Convicted in 1973, and he passed away in prison. He was 84, and he recently had COVID. So I didn't want that to go by, with, you know, without us mentioning um, a Black Panther that possibly passed away. Thank you. That's it. Man, I guess much obliged, um, Helen in New York. Oh man, and you're in New York too. I saw. Earlier today, I told uh, Emmy I did uh, yoga before the uh, program started. <clears throat> so it's not like I was sitting around uh, checking the news and everything. But I had checked the news earlier in the day before all of that. I saw Mumia Abu Jamal and Sandiata Akola, I think that's the correct pronunciation, that they both apparently reported positive COVID-19 tests uh, where I was like, wow, that is, they are both Mumia Abu-Jamal and Sandiata Akola. Uh, they are both uh, former members of the Black Panther Party. Uh, in fact, Sandiata 
he is uh, one of the New York 21 members of Helen in New York. Uh, he's one of the New York 21, along with uh, Afeni Shakur, Tupac Shakur's uh, mother. Uh, so, yeah, really important member of the party. I just saw that to like, I, but when I saw it, they didn't say that either of them had passed away. They just said that they were uh, COVID-19 positive. So that is uh, horrendous uh, to hear. Uh, and I had just seen several reports where they were talking about one uh, inmates being impacted, predominantly black people, uh, and then them not getting the vaccine either. So logic, that's what I would expect. But yeah, that is devastating news uh, Former. Black Panther member, uh, Sundiata Akola, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, thank you, Helen, in New York. I guess, yep, I always tell people to learn about local history. So, yeah, Panther 21, you're in New York. Panther 21, that's right. I think they've already been mentioned. They talked about all the different Panther cases. That is certainly a prominent one, and that's Afeni Shakur, like right there. Uh, I think she was pregnant with Tupac at the time of that, too. My memory might be bad, but I think that is, uh, I think that might be true. Anywho. Uh, caller in California, did you have commentary? Um, greetings, Gus. Greetings, um, callers and listeners. I think um, this book is um, terrifying because it just shows um, the awesome power of racism, white supremacy. Um, because we have um, Geronimo Pratt just experiencing. Um, white people's ability to turn um, black people, non-white people against him, and they're just used as weapons to torture him. I'm reminded of him being um, uh, haunted in um, prison by the various um, gangs, and I'm reminded um, of what we just heard with um, even Black Panther uh, members um, refusing to um, help him, give him the help that he needed the most in the form of, like, alibis, um, testimonies, and just how um, in the system of white supremacy, the black life is just so um, frivolous that one's facial hair, if they have facial hair, can determine if they're going to spend, like, an entire existence in a um, cage, uh, it's just just a huge indication that um, we are living in a really really um, vile system. And I um, I may be incorrect, but um, the the white people finding um, the COINTELPRO um, papers and um, that giving the Black Panthers somewhat of an idea of what was happening could also be another indication that it takes um, white people to, um, I don't know, kind of let us know how, how the system is, is being operated for us to really start to get the picture. Um, but yeah, this is a very, very terrifying book to, to experience. And I, uh, I um, feel that um, we are, we are all, insane due to the system of racial white supremacy, but if I had to experience what um Geronimo Pratt was experiencing this through the out there, I felt like I would have um just have some some sort of uh, some sort of psychological break because this is just um so much torture being um placed on one person. And I also am and thinking um 
of him being a, a military vet as well, and then that meaning absolutely nothing. Like white people do not care if you go out and kill non-white people for for them. If you are um, against their um, agenda, they will destroy you. Case in point, Geronimo Pratt, I believe. Um, Bobby Leyline. Vietnam veteran. Can I be heard again? Uh, much yes, sir. Uh, retired firefighter. Just to emphasize that this is a Vietnam veteran. They do all that uh, shaking their finger at Colin Kaepernick and you're disrespecting the veterans. They've gone out here and sacrificed so much. This is a two-tour Vietnam veteran, and they treat him this type of shabby treatment to go and lie in a courtroom and parade all these folks up here to lie about being informants, and they can't even answer questions absolute and total disgrace and it is terrifying retired firefighter in florida yes sir yeah did i did i hear somebody report on a on a uh black panther that died in prison recently helen in new york she shared that uh sundiata acoli uh, that apparently she saw a report that he passed away in prison today. Uh, I saw earlier today. I didn't see that he died, but I saw that uh, both he and Mumia Abu-Jamal reportedly have tested positive for COVID-19 while they're in greater confinement. They're both uh, Panther members, but uh, Helen in New York, yeah, she just reported that Sundiata uh, Akola, that he passed away uh, at the age of 84. Uh, apparently, he, I don't know if he passed away from COVID-19, but they did report that he was COVID-19 positive. Okay, because I, I, as as y'all were talking, I, I uh, looked around and on uh, there is someone by the name of Romaine Chip Fitzgerald. That's how that's how he was described as far as name wise. Uh, died in prison, and they reported that he was the longest imprisoned member of the Black Panther Party, fifty one years. Wow. Uh, which actually, actually, if if it's the same person, which I think it is, uh, uh, you know, this torture. Uh, they had here. He was at the age of seventy-one years old. Uh, he suffered from a from a stroke. Was forced to use a wheelchair or a walker. You know, and uh, he eventually, you know, died at at the age of seventy-one. Now the picture of him in the in the uh, I'm looking at it and it's and it's uh, democracy now. Don't get mad, Gus. <laughs> but it's democracy now. The picture looks like when he was uh, much younger. Looked like he was in his twenties at the time. Uh, there, there's there's several others who are still in prison uh, right now, and uh, a couple of them I know about has been in there for some like 40 some odd years, you know, but, uh, this, this, this particular one was actually, uh, as they say, locked up for over 51 years. And, uh, you know, so, and, and all of, all of it has some kind of connection with Coy and Temporal, all of it, you know, at some point in time, you know, they, they were caught up into that, uh, that sweep, if you will, and and we're we're reading we're reading about uh, one of the uh, many uh, individuals who uh, 
uh, literally have, were, were, you know, suffered from from this, you know. And, and as you mentioned before, the hypocrisy is, is this person uh, actually uh, served in the uh, the of the uh, forces of supposed to be for liberty and justice. He actually serves valiantly on top of it, and a lot a lot of people who are, who prosecuted him, who uh, sought to lie on him uh, when they had the opportunity, they found a way not to do that, including presidents at the time. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, I think that uh, my BFF, Amy Goodman, they do have constructive information from time to time. I think that was where the original report that I saw that Mumia Abu-Jamal and Sundiata Kola, that they were both COVID-19 positive, although it's on other outlets as well. Uh, But yeah, I do check in democracy now from time to time. Uh, Suspected race soldier, Amy Goodman. Um, Just for, I did have notes on the other half of the the audio reading, um, but just for people who are not familiar, number one, I did check Afini Shakur was pregnant with Tupac Shakur during the Panther 21 trial in New York. She, a co-defendant along with Sundiata Akolai. Um, this is from The Intercept, just for people to get a little bit of extra background information. Sundiata is 84 years old and has been in prison for nearly a half century. When the state of New Jersey locked him up in 1974, Akolai was not sentenced to die behind bars. He's been eligible for parole for almost three decades. The much-loved father and grandfather has an exemplary disciplinary record and a stellar history of work and academic achievement while incarcerated. The idea that this elderly black community leader community could be a risk to society outside the prison walls is laughable. Yet a release does not appear to be on the horizon. Incidentally, they were releasing folks who were like rapists and all the rest who were like this, who had been in prison for like 20, 30 years or whatever, just saying, eh, COVID, they're not a risk. Let them go. You know, be home, be home with your family or whatever. You don't want to die in prison, get thrown and all the rest. I guess not Sundiata. Continuing. He has been consistently denied parole since the early 1990s. His last bid in February was again denied. The parole board determined that he should be considered ineligible for another hearing for an Un, for an extended but unspecified period of time. Akola will likely not live long enough to appear before the board again. He is in poor health, as you might expect at his age after enduring 48 years of prison's effects on the body. His conditions include advancing dementia, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, emphysema, glaucoma, Akola survived a serious COVID-19 infection last year, which left him 30 pounds lighter and more infirm. Even for those who believe in the possibility of justice through carceral punishment, and I do not, Akola's ongoing uh, imprisonment should be deemed unacceptable. It has long been the case, however, that the criminal legal system denies individuals in Akola's position 
even the dregs of earnest due process afforded incarcerated people. He is a former Black Panther convicted for killing all. I did not have the proper context. See, my memory is not that good all the time. This here fella was also a co-defendant of Asada Shakur. That's why he's in New Jersey. She's on the terrorist list. So of course he's not going to be. I didn't know who I was talking like. Okay. Panther 21 and the New Jersey shootout. We read Asada Shakur's autobiography. So I'm sure they mentioned that he was also, I guess, on the turnpike in that shootout. So of course, I don't care what's going on. You will die. Uh, under the jail. Uh, we don't care what happens. I'll finish it. Former Black Panther convicted for the killing of a New Jersey state trooper in the same incident that saw the revolutionary Asada Shakur wounded and captured. He is going to die in prison as an example to any black person who might ever think of something similar. That's the system of white supremacy. Wow. And the same thing for Mumia Abu Jamal. No different. Uh, I did have, I didn't even get to my notes for the second audio chapter. They, trying to now I'm condensing to make sure I get in at least a few things. They said that Johnny Cochran had to, uh, I guess, request that Mr. Pratt not get into too much of the Panther rhetoric and off the pig and all the rest of it on the stand. Like, still learning, still learning. Like, uh, do you see those nine white people in the jury box? <laughs> like, uh, we are dependent on them to make sure you get out of here. Like, off the pig is not going to fly. Even, did you serve in the army? He says, the United States imperialists are like, time out, time out. Let me confer with them. <laughs> like, don't you say anything else. <laughs> like, uh, we are trying to get out of here. Like, Help yourself. What is it? What does it say? Help me help you behave. Just answer the questions. Don't add anything else. Like we're going to rehearse this. Get it right, man. That's why you don't put defendants on the stand. They get up there and act a fool like that. And then you get a conviction. Uh, let's see. The, the picture, I mean, white people have endless they did the same thing like with OJ Simpson this time it was not what they call a fair fight with OJ Simpson that wasn't a fair fight either they still had more resources than OJ Simpson but it was way better than this I'm so glad our investor pointed that out uh, they can just go and and rife through every especially when you can lie it might be that the photograph totally accurate and they just made up some code or what have you the defense doesn't know they don't have people to go investigate they could have just went and lied like this the code says uh you know it was produced in sacramento and blah 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 it doesn't even signify anything about the year who knows they could have just made that up they lied about everything else uh and you got all that pussy footing on the witness stand you got witnesses johnny cochran is coming out and asking basic questions are you an informant did he pick out somebody? He says, oh, well, wait, you got to put that in context. What do you mean? Pick out? I don't know. What that it's like, oh, you can't speak English now. Nobody can speak English. Nobody can answer. You sound like a cow's guest now. We need justice to come on here. Buckets and buckets of words, man. You can't just give us a yes, no answer. Lie and lie and lie and lie. This would have worked with OJ Simpson they just had a better Johnny Cochran. You should be. He was 25. I guess this is like 20, 
21 years later when the OJ Simpson trial happened. So Johnny Cochran, just like Juan, way less confused and they had way more resources too with F. Lee Bailey or two and all the rest of it Barry Sheck hey all this you just coming in here and making up stuff and the gun casing that we talked about before with the firing pin and all that oh no 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 not gonna have this time Holler Peter doesn't ask any questions no cross examination (laughs) you're gonna get cross examined on all of that totally different outcome and they maybe don't put Pratt on the stand uh, so we don't have we don't have to worry about him getting into any of this panther rhetoric and it doesn't seem like him being a veteran is going to help his status which is crazy I cannot imagine having a two tour veteran and that doesn't account for anything other than he's skilled with a firearm let's see they complain that Pratt is talking too loud in the courtroom Uh, it is terrifying because this happens every day to black Khalif Browder this happens every day to black people that we don't even know you'll never hear their name they won't get a hashtag like all of it that we heard to die in prison from the Rona and all the rest of it where they come in court and lie and make up stuff and yep he did it I saw him eyewitnesses who lied and made up or they were manipulated or both or whatever uh, every day predominantly black people particularly black males uh, let's see more of them beating up black people like pfft, I'm not in for four wallism but anything where it seems like there could be some rules where under certain circumstances we got to go upside the head of a black person this is not the club for me uh, let's see. Anything else I need to make sure I get out for the second portion? It seems like the pacing of this trial is very different also from the OJ trial with all the uh, cameras and courtroom. Like they are rolling. Like they had witnesses on the stand for the OJ trial for like two weeks and such. I like, don't have any of that here. Like people up, they said 10 minutes. We got the Polaroid guy 10 minutes and we're gone. <laughs> Like uh, it took 10 minutes just to go through basics uh, with some of the people in the OJ Simpson trial. Uh, Let's see. Anything else to get in? Oh man, this also, they have the kind of embarrassing moment. Uh, black people are, are childlike, Mr. Fuller says. So they call Jackie Horton uh, to the witness stand and she testifies. She'll speak up for um, Geronimo that, you know, he was in Oakland. She saw him a bunch of times. He couldn't have done this, this crime, but they ridicule her. They mock her, right? Uh, in terms of the way she's answering questions and what have you. And then uh, when she goes to step down, Uh, She says, well, do I need to be sworn out? And they're laughing and giggling because she, you know, it it made me pause like, wow, 1973, the whole country hasn't sat down and watched the O.J. Simpson trial. So we don't know like the whole this is how corporate or like just some of the basics of court procedure right like we don't have we don't have court tv and judge judy and all that like we all have so we got some of the basics about how this works and what the general like we might not know all the latin and everything else but i mean we got some of the basics about uh, courtroom protocol 
not the case back in 73 and you're mocked I mean it's not oh she's, maybe she's never testified before she's not here that's the system of white supremacy mocking black people for ignorance not let's help you make sure that you're informed no we mock and ridicule you and she just asked the question do I need to be sworn out no ma'am you can leave next witness what else we got keep it moving nope gotta mock black people take our seconds get our jokes on uh, let's see got that about the photos yeah I'll leave there I'll leave there anybody else anything else they want to make sure they got in before we conclude hello Gus Helen in New York Yes, I just wanted to say real quick that um, I apologize that I said that um, Cody, uh, Cody had passed away, misinformation. I just wanted to bring him up because of the book reading and um, strive for accuracy. Yes, I apologize. Wrong information. Thank you. Oh, so he's still alive? Is that is that it? He's still alive? Yes, I believe he's still alive. They were just bringing him up and saying that he asked for a parole or that he was up for parole again, but they were going to deny him or something like that. But, yeah, I, I apologize. Oh, okay. Well, that is one uh, error that I will happily take. Like, yes, that he is still alive and has not passed away uh, in greater confinement. Right on. Because, yeah, I had seen that today. Like, wow, things have advanced rapidly. Um, yeah, so apparently still alive, just positive with COVID-19, which is still not good news, both he and Mumia Abu-Jamal. But yeah, I did see that uh, earlier today. Folks can check that out. That is glad we got that corrected and for the better. Uh, Sundiata Okola is still alive. Uh, but I'm glad at least we got the information co-defendant with both Afini Shakur and Asada Shakur. That's why he's going to die in prison. Punishment. Uh, retired firefighter. Yeah, I was I was going to say the irony of uh, uh, this particular book reading uh, just before just before we started, I was watching this uh, documentary, uh, and you were speaking about uh, 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 Mr. Pratt's uh, credentials as a a quote unquote war hero, uh, and uh, this particular documentary was about a black male. I, I can't remember his name right now who uh, was snatched off. He was in full uniform, uh, hadn't seen his wife in a year or so because he was in World War II, uh, and was literally snatched off a bus on the way going home uh, by law enforcement, and uh, they put his eyes out in full uniform, a sergeant, uh, you know, and uh, it went to trial in uh, South Carolina, uh, in that Coon, Coon, Coon man's uh, home state, uh, and uh, basically uh, they uh, ruled the uh, police chief that that actually was the person who did it innocent. So it's not unusual for uh, under the system of racist white supremacy that they will severely punish and or kill black males. Uh, who was actually working on the behalf of white people in uniform. 
Yeah. Much obliged. That was an early example, 1946 to be exact. Much obliged. Retired firefighter uh, Isaac Woodard, the black male's name. They just released the documentary through PBS, The Blinding of Isaac Woodard. And that uh, incident is in a number of books that we've read on the cows, most recently uh, Cased. Uh, I believe it's also uh, in... The non-white or suspected racist, excuse me. Uh, he was on the program toward the end of the year. Uh, he mentioned it as well. It's been mentioned a bunch of times, but most recently, I believe, Case uh, Victor Ortiz. That was it. His book, uh, Paul Ortiz. Sorry, Paul Ortiz. Toward the end of uh, 2020, it's in his book uh, as well. Uh, this incident because it was huge uh, and it did spark a lot uh, of activity in the so-called civil rights movement. Uh, towards the beginning of the or end of the 1940s, begin the right. 1950s. Uh, but yeah, blinding the right. blinding of Isaac Woodard, PBS. They do have a lot, much like Democracy Now, my BFF Amy Goodman. They do have a lot of great documentaries on racism, white supremacy. Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, lots of folks. Uh, and South Carolina is not Coon Man territory. That is Pitchfork Ben Tillman territory. Coon Man is oh, VA. Oh, that, that's what I. I, I I get it mixed up. Sorry. So it's tough to keep track. <laughs> I knew it had to know. be one of those guys. <laughs> yes, yes. It's all the same region, South Mid-Atlantic, same thing, basically. Uh, anywho, uh, we will be here tomorrow for Neutralizing Workplace Racism, Saturday for Compensatory Call-In, and then we will get it right, Dr. Gerald Horn, uh, with the bittersweet science on Monday. All of that kind of wrapped around uh, the assassination of Dr. King, uh, April 4, this Sunday. But anywho, that'll wrap us up for the book club this week. We'll be back tomorrow. Strive for accuracy. Say that all the time. So important. Although today, error I will take. Much obliged. Uh, sobriety would be best. Man, with all of the terrorism we're experiencing, being accused of things all the time, man, it is always helpful to have a clear functioning brain computer cranking out logic to help keep you safe in addition to being sober I would say hunker down like it is super dangerous Uh, shootings every day can't even get all the information on you know the first shooting because they just had the shooting down in California and there is a spirit of menace if you got to go out do not engage anyone in any sort of verbal altercation over a mask or anything else uh, if they look like they're being hostile and loud exit uh, this is not the time to be confronting folks and you know demanding that they do this or do that exit uh, everything is about risk aversion for 2020 well feels like 2020 still but 2021 whatever uh, if you gotta go out <clears throat> and you should be thinking this person could be armed Definitely. I mean, they shouldn't need no reason for any reminder, but just in case you should be thinking this here fella, this woman could be armed, might have a whole lot of friends with them who are also armed with all of that in mind. If you go out, you are very sober. If you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. We need all of our attention. Minimize contact with the Mark Furman's of the known universe everyone is buckled uh, we are super alert as you move about in a universe dominated by white supremacy 
All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Ca- oh, 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 got me wait. See, people waited, waited late. People could, I just looked, can't be putting the hand up at the end of the program. I have to catch them next time. Uh, Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.